We've seen unprecedented waves of top prospects being called up into the show, but how are we as fantasy managers supposed to respond? I'll ask Justin Mason from Friends with Fantasy Benefits, Rotographs, Fantasy Pros, and multiple podcasts about that and a whole lot more. Next on Baseball HQ Radio. Learn to play the winner's way, because Baseball HQ Radio starts right now. And here's your host from BaseballHQ.com, columnist Patrick Davitt. And welcome to Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, July the 7th. It's show number 24 of the 2023 fantasy baseball season. I am Patrick Davitt, your host, and we do have another great Friday full edition for you. We'll have a two-part feature expert interview with Justin Mason from Friends with Fantasy Benefits, Rotographs, Fantasy Pros, and multiple fantasy baseball podcasts. In part one, we'll discuss a few buy lows and sell highs and the young pitchers who have come up this season. And in part two, Justin and I will talk about the year in young hitters, and he'll have his rest of season boons and banes. In between, we'll have our weekly fantasy news update with Ray Murphy of BaseballHQ.com looking at American League hitters, including the outfield and DH situations in Houston and Texas and the Mike Trout injury in Los Angeles, AL pitchers, including Andrew Heaney and Josh Sabors, both of Texas, National League hitters, including Corbin Carroll, Trey Turner, Garrett Cooper, Nelson Cruz, and Ozzie Albies, and National League pitching, including Braxton Garrett of Miami, Mackenzie Gore of Washington, and the latest upheavals in the Dodgers rotation. We'll also have our regular commentaries from the guys at BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. In the frequent flyer, Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky looks at Mets shortstop Ronnie Mauricio. And in extra innings, I'll talk about how to improve All-Star Weekend. It's another big Friday full edition. Thanks for joining us at Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, what do you say? All-Star Weekend is coming up. Let's make it better. We gotta talk some baseball. Well, during our discussion, Justin Mason and I will touch on how All-Star Weekend could be made better and more interesting, and then I'll have more to say about that in my extra innings comment near the end of the pod. Meanwhile, in the first inning of this Friday Full Edition, it's part one of our feature expert interview with Justin Mason from Friends with Fantasy Benefits, Rotographs, Fantasy Pros, and multiple podcasts. Justin, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. It's been quite a while. Yeah, it's been too long. We weren't able to kind of uh, nail down a date last year, uh, but uh, it's always a pleasure to be back on with you, Patrick. It's great to see you. Yeah, and I know it must be difficult. You must be the most hardworking guy in all of uh, fantasy baseball. You're everywhere all at once, and you're running leagues, and you're organizing stuff, and you got a full-time job on top of it, uh, little kids to look after, the, mm-hmm. the whole deal. I wonder how many hours of sleep do you get in an average night? Uh, I actually get more during this season than I do, uh, you know, after the season or before the season. So uh, this is actually kind of uh, my downtime, and that would seem counterintuitive to most people. But uh, I kind of get into a groove in season, and I don't have to do a lot of management of, you know, of of like TGFBI. Like that's all taken care of by NFBC, and, um, you know, and so, uh, and I'm not really 
having to like do a lot of research for articles. I'm doing a lot of, you know, mostly it's a lot of kind of set beats that I'm doing, which is nice. So it's, you know, I get, well, everybody else is kind of like really grinding during the season. I get to kind of be on cruise control a little bit. And then I, and then I go crazy in, in the off season. So that's when I'm getting two or three hours of sleep uh, while everybody else is taking a break. I'm, I'm, I'm burning the midnight oil. Reverse hibernation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> so how many drafts are you playing this year and how are your teams doing? I, I know that I'm in 17 NFBC leagues and then I'm in, you know, Tout Wars and uh, I'm in uh, a few dynasty leagues. Uh, and so I'm probably in around tw- 23, 24 leagues in total this year. And for the most part, they're all going fairly well. I've got a uh, my my auction championship team through NFBC, which is a fifteen hundred dollar buy in, has an overall component. I've been in first place for the last month in my league and top ten in the overall. Bounced as high as two or three in the overall, and uh, and my other leagues are going fairly well. I'm competitive, which is really nice. Last year was kind of a bummer of a year for me, where I I didn't even cash in any league, uh, and I was the it was my worst season. Uh, that I that I've ever had playing fantasy, and it was uh, really, really kind of disastrous for my ego. And so I really committed myself this off season and did a lot of work, like I said, burned the midnight oil all off season to be really, really prepared coming into this year. Uh, and uh, it, it seems to have paid off fairly well. Of the twenty or so leagues, how many of them are leagues where you have to make moves every week or every day versus uh, stand and hold kind kind of things? So I think I've probably got about 10 or maybe actually probably closer to seven uh, draft and hold leagues where I'm not having to make fab pickups. Uh, And then a number of my dynasty leagues, I've purposefully gone into like long-term rebuilds where I don't have to be quite as active. I'm not like looking looking at standings every day and going, okay, working on game points because I'm actually trying to do the opposite. You and I were talking prior to recording, like, I tried to stream Michael Lorenz in to hurt my team and it actually blew up in my face a little bit. Um, so, uh, cause he had a nice little outing. Uh, so uh, I'd say probably about 12 to 13, maybe more of my leagues are ones where I'm doing active fab. I only play in a couple daily lineup leagues. Cause that's just, uh, I mean, God bless the people who love those leagues. It's just too much work. Uh, for me. Uh, yeah, so uh, I, I'd much prefer uh, the NFPC format where you make moves, uh, roster moves uh, twice a week and then fab once a week or or even just traditional, you know, tout wars like, you know, weekly moves leagues. I'm with you. Uh, when I was younger and I was single, I used to think, I wish there were leagues where you could make your moves every day because in those days there weren't. There's mm-hmm. a, a, much, uh, a much smaller number of leagues that were being played online leagues were just in their infancy. And so you didn't really have that many opportunities. If you wanted to play in a daily moves league, you had to set the league up yourself and go find 12 or 15 guys to be in it with you. And, and that never happened. And then, uh, as I got older and more teams and I just thought, you know what, once a week is plenty, <laughs> I'll, I'll get by on once a week. And even at that, sometimes it seems to be more than I want to handle. You, you mentioned that your teams are doing well. Did you have any common threads, common players across a lot of your teams this year? 
Uh, I mean, I definitely have some common players, some guys that I identified pretty early on that uh, I felt were uh, undervalued by the market. Uh, but I mean, I think the common thread was I didn't really know, and I think nobody really truly knew how the rule changes were going to affect things. We thought that, you know, maybe some ground ball pitchers were going to get hurt. We thought uh, because of the shift, we thought that, uh, you know, certain types of batters or hitters were going to be able to steal a little bit more. Uh, but we didn't quite know exactly how things were going to happen. I, I remember going into the shortened 2020 season, a lot of analysts saying, well, you for, for the shortened season, you need to do this. And for the shortened season, you need to do that. Uh, and I maintained that we had no idea what we were doing. Like it, it never happened before, you know, there was no historical context for, for 2020, really no historical context for 2021 either in terms of coming off of that shortened season. And so I said, listen, I'm going to pick players with the best skills and then try to make that work in fab. Um, and that's been kind of what I did for 2023 was I looked for hitters who made really good contact in the zone. Uh, you know, had really, really good understanding of the strike zone. I, t I looked at pitchers who had, uh, you know, really, really good swing and miss kind of stuff, right? That weren't going to be as reliant on the defense behind them. And then I looked for deals. I looked for uh, guys in the marketplace. I did full projections this year, which is something I haven't done in years. Uh, and so I kind of took ADP and I went, okay, this is what my full projection said. Uh, and I looked at ADP and I go, okay, where are the deals? And so a guy like Marcus Stroman, who doesn't necessarily fit that swing and miss stuff kind of profile, was just really, really underrated by the marketplace for me. Um, and so he ended up on a few of my teams. TJ Friedel was a guy that I looked at as, hey, he's leading off in a fantastic ballpark, makes good contact, can uh, steal bases. Uh, I got him like in 17 leagues. Uh, and he's been a godsend. And so it was really looking mostly for the inefficiencies in the market and a little bit of other people overreacting a little bit to what we thought were going to be drastic changes. And there has been some big changes, but maybe not in the same way that maybe some people thought. The one that jumps out to my mind when you say that is the stolen base situation, because I remember in the off season, everybody was saying, well, obviously there's going to be more stolen bases. The question is going to be, mm -hmm. how are the added stolen bases going to be distributed? Are the Cedric Mullinses of the world uh, going to get, go from 40 stolen bases to 70, or are they going to go from 40 to 50 and all the 10 stolen base guys that are going to go up to 15 or 18 or whatever. And I actually haven't looked at it that closely. I know Jason Collette's been tweeting about it, mm -hmm. but uh, have you got any insight as to how that distribution of the added stolen bases, it's up almost 50%. Where are the stolen bases going? Uh, you know, I haven't looked into it. Jason's definitely the, the better answer. I believe it is kind of what a lot of people thought in terms of, uh, some of the guys who were kind of in the middle are pushing it a little bit more, but we're also seeing guys who have traditionally maybe not run nearly as much that are starting to go, Hey, like uh, it's a little bit easier. You know, Kettle Marte is a really good example. You know, he had five total, total stolen bases last year. He's already got six this year. And I just think you're seeing that kind of upping across them. Now you're also seeing, you know, some of those numbers start to slow down a little bit because, you know, teams are getting a little bit more caught up. And so I wonder if in the second half we'll see maybe not as few stolen bases as we saw in 2022, but not nearly as many as we saw in the first half, because, you know, you're starting to see teams go, okay, we've got to figure out how to stop this run production 
that people are getting from uh, the stolen bases. So I think it's still a fluid thing. I don't even know if we're going to have the answer until the end of the season on exactly who and you know what kind of strategies really work for this. Been seeing a lot of catchers throwing behind the runners on the bases uh, because, of course, the pitchers are really restricted in how many times they can throw over. But the uh, catchers are doing a pretty good job. I've seen, yeah. you know, you see two or three a year, it seems, in past years. And I've seen two or three this year already, just l- glancing around the TV dial. So I, you're right. You know, ba- Major League Baseball teams and players are really good. And when something changes in the environment, they're going to adapt. And I think it's going to be really interesting to watch for the balance of this year to see how that stolen base thing plays out because at the start of this year I was talking about this with Ray Murphy and Todd Zola and I said this is the year where we're going to have to look at it to figure out what next year is going to be because this year nobody's going to have any kind of clue and if you want to you know throw in a little extra money on Estuary Ruiz because you think he's going to steal 65 bags good for you he might you know, and in fact, he probably would have, but I think he's hurt now and uh, it may, he uh, may miss quite a bit of time, but he was on track for 65 or so. And at the same time, you could also have been right if you said, no, I'm going to grab all those five stolen base guys and going to get 12 each from all of them. And that's how I'm going to make up my difference. So different strokes for different folks. Uh, I was listening to the uh, Sleeper in the Bus podcast the other day and you said, you don't like watching the all-star game or the home run derby. And in fact, you're going to take that whole time off of baseball entirely. What is it about the all-star game and home run derby that you dislike? I think they could do a better job with it first and foremost. I I mean, I, I've said for years, like why not have like a, an old style, like old West shooting gallery where pitchers could like explode things like, uh, you know, bottles and things like that. Um, They, they bury one of the most intriguing events in the futures game. They, they put it on Sunday against, you know, regular baseball. You've got to go to like FS one to try to find it. Uh, I end up missing it every year. Uh, a bunch of players get left off the roster that actually deserve to be there. Uh, the fan vote just shouldn't happen. The fan vote has been hijacked for years and years by, you know, different fan bases or, you know, just inter- internet voting. I liked it a little bit more when, like, you know, it was hand voted for. And this may sound old of me, and I'm not necessarily particularly old, but like, like giving unlimited votes on the internet, like, just it, it, it makes it like American Idol. It becomes a popularity contest as opposed to like giving an opportunity for the players who are having the best seasons. And when, you know, I know Wanda Franco, you know, made it now, but when, Whit Merrifield makes it over Wander Franco, you've got a really, really big problem because one, it's undeserving for uh, Merrifield to get it over a guy like Wander Franco. And two, Wander Franco is like a, one of the brightest young stars of the league. They, they need to be showcasing these young stars. Uh, and baseball has always had a PR problem. It's one of the reasons it fell behind basketball and football in terms of popularity in this country. You know, everybody knows what. Tom Brady's face looks like, even though he wears a helmet and nobody knows what Mike Trout's face looks like outside of like actual baseball fans. Um, and I just think that the all-star game, the Homer Derby is okay. It's fine. Um, you know, it is what it is. Uh, but I just think they should be doing more. I mean, I, I know hockey's not very popular, but they have one of the coolest all-star weeks, like with all their skills competitions and uh, things that they do for that. Like I wish baseball would embrace that more. 
I was just thinking the same thing that uh, basketball too, uh, taking the hockey mm-hmm. example, picked it up and ran with it. Now they have, well, the three point contest is a lot of fun. The dunk mm-hmm. contest has been going for a while, but they also have these kind of guys have to fire passes through hoops and, and go yeah. in and make layups and rebounds and stuff like that. And it's a chance to see the skills outside the context of the games where sometimes they're not as apparent. I mean, a dunk's always fairly apparent, but you know, a nice outlet pass is really something to see. And if you're not paying attention to the game or you don't follow basketball that closely, you might not realize, wow, that was a terrific pass. Same thing in hockey. You know, a guy can make those long passes. It's a really hard thing to do and you just don't get to appreciate it. And I think they're Boy, you know, if you put your mind to it, can't you just see a skills competition with pitchers trying to, like those targets that the NHL shooters have yeah. to pick off, you know, have, have put put them in the strike zone and say you got to hit them with a the curveball. How many, and how many curveballs do you have to throw before you can knock off the four corners of the strike zone? I would personally tune in for that way more if, uh, ahead of the of the home run derby because I, I think the home run derby's just kind of not that interesting after the first few guys. It, you know, I don't, I don't like it. And I mean, here, you know, one of the other things the NBA does, which I really, really like is they have the, like the rookies versus sophomores game. Right. And baseball has this huge influx over the last few years of really, really young talent. We're seeing it this year with all these rookie pitchers coming up. Give me a rookies versus sophomores game. Like I would much rather watch that than the celebrity softball game that nobody cares about. I just, I just think they should be doing so much more with the event. And so, yeah, I, every year I go on vacation with my family in the middle of the summer and the last, you know, probably 10 years, it's been during the all-star break. And it is just a time for me to unplug, unwind, uh, not worry about baseball and the all-star break. And it's, it's been fantastic actually. I wonder if they could figure out some way of running a little tournament that ran, you know, all day Monday or something like that, uh, three little three inning games with the, with the rookies and the second, uh, the second year guys, and maybe over an over 30 team, mm-hmm. you know, and they could all, uh, just rotate around playing each other. There are lots of ways that they could have way more fun with this. Uh, you're exactly right about that. In the July 2nd edition of the sleeper in the bus, you and Jason Collette said you're moving on from Royce Lewis. He's injured again, of course. Mm-hmm. How did you reach that conclusion that it's time to cut bait on? Royce Lewis again. I think we're kind of conditioned to think it's a long season. It is a long season. We still have a long ways to go. So I also recommend like don't give up on your teams, even if you're in last place in the league, if you're in 12th or 15th place, or you know, like don't give up in your leagues because there's still so much time to go. That being said, when someone gets injured and they're gonna miss four, six, eight weeks, that's a large portion of the season left. And so you have to start making really tough cuts especially if you're playing in leagues with limited IL spots or no IL spots. And I think Royce Lewis is a really good example. You know, we've got uh, like 10 weeks left in the season, 11 weeks left in the season. If he's going to miss six of those weeks, that's over half of the remaining season. Uh, And is he the type of guy that is going to win you your league in the remaining, let's say, four to six weeks after he comes back? I don't know that he is, you know, he isn't a guy that is necessarily gets everyday playing time. There's a lot of talent. I love Royce Lewis for the future, but he's also a guy that has been injured almost his entire career. It's the reason why we've waited till now to see him get a real extended look in the majors is because he keeps getting hurt. And so, you know, there's a chance he's not even back in six weeks or eight weeks. He could, you know, miss the majority or the rest of the season, especially 
you know, maybe the Twins fall out of it at some point. I think they're going to be in it uh, for the long haul, and you know, he may get a shot if he's healthy. But I mean, his track record says he may not be. So I think right now is the time to look at, you know, especially when you're looking at like stashing guys who are injured and may not be back. Uh, make real tough cuts because. Got, there aren't a lot of guys that are going to have a huge impact in the last month or last six weeks of the season to help you win a league. You know what I'd like to see is somebody do some research, medical research, on body types of players who get hurt a lot. Uh, offensive players, of course. Pitchers, they all get hurt sooner or later. Yeah. Pretty much anyway. <laughs> but there, is there a body type or a couple of body types that are more prone to getting injured? Byron Buxton's a kind of one of those lanky, tall, wiry guys. But they... Usually, well, Eric Davis was hurt a lot, and there are guys with that build, but uh, uh, Alfonso Soriano seemed like he never missed a game the whole time I was uh, having him on my fantasy teams. Well, is, it, is there any kind of research that you know about or any kind of eyeball that you've given it to say, that's the kind of guy I don't want to have because I'm, I've seen too many of his type get hurt? Maybe not in the context that you're talking about right now. I definitely think that there are, I think the bigger, stronger guys who are inflexible tend to get hurt. So Giancarlo Stanton, uh, the, the Aaron judge types, um, even like Yandy Diaz, who like, you know, he's always seemingly hurt with something. Uh, he doesn't, he hasn't necessarily had like catastrophic injuries in the way that Stanton and judge have, but uh, and it typically comes from a lack of flexibility. It's why Aaron Judge and Stan have both talked about trying to do yoga. Um, and uh, I like I know I know that like the the White Sox have uh, made Andrew Vaughn start doing yoga in order to try to help keep him healthy. Uh, but I also think that guys like Buxton, guys like Royce Lewis, I think it may come just from a lot or from too much hustle to be quite honest these guys put them, their body on the line i mean kevin kiermeyer is a really really great example of a guy that like if he probably didn't die for every ball and, and run into walls he probably have, would have had a much more prolific career as a hitter uh, because he's able to stay on the field and those are really hard things to quantify and why i why i think like in in the world of like sabermetrics where I think it's really important to understand the numbers and really, you know, go by the numbers for a large portion of things. Watching ba- like nothing beats watching live baseball because you get to see these type of things and you know see a guy like Jazz Chisholm like, you know, hurt his toe because he's running, you know, into the outfield and you know bangs it up against the wall. Like seeing seeing these guys who put their body at risk is a risk in itself for fantasy. Um and it's one of the reasons I try to stay away from those guys for the most part. Yeah, I think what I need is a compendium that somebody writes and says, here are the guys like that. Here are the guys you want to try to avoid because they just crash into stuff a lot. And I think we know sort of anecdotally who they are, but, you know, I don't see as much baseball as I used to, and it would be good to know. I I watch mostly Toronto games, Cincinnati games, and usually what's on some, I listen on a late night West Coast feed. And I miss a lot of the teams and I don't know which players are out there banging into things and, and, you know, doing, as you say, throwing themselves around and making themselves available to get hurt. And I wish somebody would uh, tell me who those guys are. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt here with Justin Mason from Friends with Fantasy Benefits, Rotographs, Fantasy Pros, a million podcasts. In this week's edition of your weekly review at Fantasy Pros, Justin, you offered some trade advice, including buy lows and sell highs. And your buy lows included Toronto first baseman Vladdy Guerrero. 
How likely is a fantasy manager to want to sell low on Vladdy? That's a that's a tough question. Um, I think that uh, they're probably not going to want to sell particularly low because he's not having a bad season necessarily. But I do think that I had Vlad Guerrero Jr. as a top five player coming into this season. And I think he will be that kind of player in, uh, uh, in the second half. And so I think often when we think of by lows, we're thinking of, Oh, this guy's had a disastrous, you know, first at Sandy Alcantara, I think is a really, really good example of like, you know, your traditional by low. Oh, you know, he was a top five pitcher coming into draft season. He's been really, really bad. Uh, I'm going to offer a low ball offer and try to get him cheaply. I don't think those trades work that well most of the time. People are way too attached to their draft day value to begin with. Um, what I do think you can do a lot more often is just buy lower, um, which is what I'm trying to do with a guy like Vladimir uh, uh, Guerrero Jr., who's a guy who, uh, yes, he's been fine, but I think he's going to be great. And the numbers say that he should be great. His ex-slug is higher than his slug. His ex-average is higher than his average. He hits the ball hard. He's he's in the middle of a fantastic lineup. Like, I I would pay a first-round price for Vlad Guerrero Jr., but I don't think you have to. I think you can trade maybe one of these guys who are a second- or third-round talent that have had, you know, good starts the year for a guy like Vladdy uh, and kind of reap the benefits of that. I think you're right that if you make an offer of, you know, a $10 player for Vladdy, it's just going to be perceived as an insult by the guy who has him. As you said, a lot of guys do get that they don't understand that whole sunk cost thing and they just think, I paid $30 for him at the auction. I'm not giving him away for, th- for 10 bucks. And fair dues. They probably, overall, I bet it's probably pretty good advice. But if you think he's going to be a $30 player the balance of the season and you offer a, a, a $19 or $21 player, now maybe you're interesting that guy, especially mm-hmm. if you're careful about the kind of player you're offering. Oh, I see you need saves. I've got uh, Romano. You want to make a Jays for Jays trade? You get the saves. I get Vladdy, and I'll throw in a first baseman kind of thing. And you can make a, a deal set up where you're paying less than you think without paying less than anybody would reasonably think to accept. How about a sell low hitter right now? Who would you sell low on? Going back to the injury prone thing, um, anybody who is like consistently struggled with injury, I, you know, the guys like. Jazz Chisholm, you know, Jazz is back on the IL. Uh, again, he's going to miss time. They're going to be people that come to you and try to give you a kind of, uh, they're going to try to buy low. Uh, and I'd actually let them do that, right? Like Byron Bucks, I'd actually let them do that. Now, these guys, they have unbelievable talent and they could win leagues at the end, but there's just a good a chance that they just come back and do nothing. In these, in head to head leagues, I'm probably less reluctant or I'm probably more reluctant to let them go. But if you're playing in Roto, like you need those stats to accumulate and they, they do nothing just sitting on your IL or on your bench. So guys like that are typically the ones um, I want to uh, I want to let go of or the ones that are, you know, either got nagging injuries or they've repetitively gotten injured. injured. You said Baltimore first baseman Ryan Mountcastle is a true buy low. What makes a guy a true buy low candidate? It's a guy who's just been extremely unlucky, and Mountcastle has been just extremely unlucky this year. I think he's one of those guys that uh, he definitely gets hurt a little bit by the, the the dimensions in that park, but 
uh, you know, the, the X slug is, uh, is much higher than the actual slug. Uh, the X average is higher. That lineup is actually really, really good and getting better as they continue to add reinforcements. And I don't think he's in any real jeopardy of not having a job when he comes back, even though they've added talent. And so he's one of those guys that's available on, you know, some shallow waiver wires. But I think even in your deeper formats, like he's a guy you can get for pretty much nothing. So this is one of those, you know, buy extremely low because people don't have, you know, people have real attachments to the guys they took in the first five to 10 rounds. They don't really have attachment to the guys they took in the teen rounds and in the 20 rounds. And that's kind of where you got Mount Castle. And so I think you can get him all, all you know, sometimes as a throw in, like as, as a guy, like, Hey, he's a secondary piece in the deal, but he actually might end up being the best piece down the road. You said Toronto starter Jose Barrios is a sell high. And I've been reading and hearing a lot of experts saying Barrios is back with some reasonable evidence to back up that position. What makes you think Barrios's current 374 ERA, 120 whip, they're decent numbers. He's a $14 five by five player on baseball HQ's valuation. What makes you think that there's nowhere to go but down? I, I just don't trust the guy. You know, he's got a 474 XERA. Um, I, I love what uh, Nick Pollock calls him as the great undulator. Uh, this guy is just is up and down, up and down. I loved Jose Barrios coming up from the minor leagues. I thought he was going to be the next thing. And he's just never really taken the level. Um, and he's just not a guy that I feel confident that I'm ever going to be able to trust. And when you're pitching in that division with, I mean, the worst team in that division is the Boston Red Sox. And they would be like in the like playoff race or division race in virtually any other division in baseball. Uh, I just, I just don't trust him. And I just don't think, I think they're going to be, you know, really nice games where you're like, yeah, I'm glad I have Jose Barrios. And there's going to be other games where you're just like, oh my God, he just ruined my week. Um, and those are the types of guys that I'm not super interested in holding on to. And I think, I think it's really important when you're looking to sell high uh, or, or buy low that you really listen to a lot of the work that's going on within our industry, right? Because we move needles, right? When, when, when a guy like Nick Pollock or, you know, Sarah's writes an article on a picture or talks about them on a podcast, people listen and it really informs what your league mates are going to do. And if you don't buy what those people, not to say those people, they're extremely smart, love both Nick and, you know, uh, and a lot of other people in the industry, but if you don't believe what they're telling you, if, if you disagree with them, then it's a perfect time to do the opposite of what they're saying, right? Because the market gets really hot. We see this during draft season all the time, right? You know, uh, the industry pumps up these players, right? And they overvalue them or they push these players down. And those are the opportunities to go against the grain where you can make maximum profit. Well, talking of pitchers, there's been a huge influx of prospect pitchers this year in the Major League Baseball. And before we talk about uh, some of those young pitchers, what's your explanation for why the teams are being so aggressive about promoting them? In past years, we wouldn't have seen a third of this many pitchers, especially this early in the season. I think it's kind of multifaceted. I think uh, first and foremost, there's now an incentive to bring guys up, you know, in terms of, you know, votes for rookie of the year. Uh, it gets you uh, more draft picks. Um, I also think that the, the the insane amount of injuries we've had with pitchers um, has contributed to it. The teams just don't have the depth. Uh, you know, they only have so many guys on a 40-man roster 
that can actually be a starting pitcher. Uh, and so they're, they're running, some of them are just running out of options. And I think, you know, guys like uh, Bryce Elder, or not Bryce, sorry, uh, uh, Bryce Miller in Seattle, like is a really, really good example of like a guy that I think if Seattle had been healthy, he probably wouldn't have gotten a shot nearly as early as he did. Um, you know, guys like, uh, you know, Tanner Bybee and now Gavin Williams and Logan Allen uh, prior to being demoted, like had it not been for all the injuries that the Guardians had, they would not have gotten the opportunities normally. So I think it's kind of a confluence of events where you're now given a bonus to, to promote these guys. Um, and your major league rosters are getting decimated by injuries, you know, some drastic and some not so drastic and teams just don't have as many options to use. And I think also the last thing is there are more playoff teams than there ever have been. I think with more teams who can be competitive because there's more playoff spots available, teams are going to get more aggressive. We're seeing this with uh, the Arizona Diamondbacks who were like, Hey, you know, they want to win the division. I hope they win the division. I bet on them to win the division back in March. But uh, I think they're looking at it and going, even if we don't win the division from the Dodgers, we can still make the playoffs. And we saw, you know, some teams in the National League last year who squeaked in the playoffs and did some real damage during the playoffs. Uh, and so I think I think the combination of all three of those things are allowing teams or giving teams the excuse to be more aggressive. Well, speaking of aggressiveness, when those pitchers got called up, it seemed like weekend after weekend, we were having articles and podcast discussions about how aggressive are we going to be chasing after Gavin Williams this week or, or Tanner Bybee the week before, or Brian Wu the week after, or Brian, uh, Bryce Miller, all of these young pitchers come up and there's this fabapalooza every weekend. It seems how aggressively did you get after these young pitchers as they came up? So my strategy um, used to be to like just throw money, just throw money and just hope I'm going to hit. Uh, and what it ended up doing was just hamstringing me uh, the rest of the way. And so I have tried to be less aggressive on individual players and more aggressive overall. So that means in a $1,000 Fab League, I don't want to make three or $400 bids uh, unless I'm really – uh, addressing a specific need for that team. Um, that And I feel really confident that this player is going to do that. Uh, instead, I've tried to spread my money around. And the leagues I'm doing the best in are the leagues where I stuck to that. Now, in a few leagues, I've TGFBI, I blew a bunch of money on Liam Hendricks. I needed saves. Um, and it's the exact reason why I try not to do that is because I had Liam Hendricks for a week. I don't even think he got a save. He may have gotten one. Um, and he went on the IL. And now I've wasted 300 something dollars on one player that I can't get back. And it's going to hamstring me the rest of the year in TGFBI where I'm really competitive and I, you know, I'm in third place and I could really push up into, into first in my league and try to compete for an overall, but I don't think I've got the fat to do it. I've got like 150 bucks left. Whereas the auction league I was talking about on an FBC, um, I've been a lot more careful with my fab. I have made a few bigger bids and and gotten lucky getting like Yuri Perez and stuff like that. But for the most part, uh, I've been kind of sufficing with, you know, five, 10, $20 bids and just kind of filling holes as they pop up and trying to get guys a week early as opposed to like waiting for their, you know, oh, this week they've got a really nice schedule. Now, well, that's too late because I'm going to have to spend too much money. So 
being really prepared going into fab, I think is a really big thing, but I caution people against the massive bidding because uh, while it's great to hit Yuri Perez or Yuri Perez or great to hit um, Ellie De La Cruz and guys like that, uh, when they do pop more often than not, you're going to get Brandon fat and, or get a guy that just gets hurt. And now you have blown that money and you have very little to compete with. I really like that idea of looking a week ahead when you're choosing your fab guys, uh, especially in leagues where you can fab them and put them straight onto reserve and you get them the week before and yeah, you spend the money and yeah, you take up the slot, but that can really pay off. That's a really good plan. I broke down 19 first year starting pitchers into four quartiles based on their results so far in baseball HQ, PQS scores. They're like game scores, ERA and whip, uh, strikeout walk percentages, that kind of thing. The first quartile would be the bottom group of the 19, guys like Hogan Harris of Oakland, Johnny Brito, Brandon Fott, you mentioned, uh, Jared Schuster, and Matthew Liberatore, who just got sent down. Of any of these five guys, you like them for this uh, rest of this year and on into the longer future? Matthew Liberatore looks lost. Hogan Harris is really interesting. The only problem for me is uh, if he was on any other team, uh, he would make a lot of sense. Uh you know, even if they could just put a different team in Oakland in that ballpark, because the ballpark is great to pitch in, uh, but you're just never going to get wins with him. Um, maybe you could pair him with a guy like Schuster, because I don't necessarily trust Schuster's skills all the time, even though I, you know, when he is pitching well, he's, he's really fun to watch. Uh, but that offense behind him uh, is, uh, is really, really intriguing. And so it kind of like, could, could we trade Hogan Harris and Jared Schuster? Like, can we make a deal for those, for those teams to get, uh, Hogan Harris pitching for, for Atlanta? Cause yeah, man, he's just, he's been re- a really, really interesting pitcher just buried in a really bad, or with a really, really bad team fought. I just, he just doesn't have any idea of where his stuff is going. The stuff is really, really good. Um, it, it just, it reminds me so much of like Archie Bradley when he was coming up from the, from the same team where like the stuff was really good. He just couldn't command it. And so Brito, I think Brito is like a classic streamer to be honest. I think he's one of those guys that he doesn't have overwhelming stuff. He, you know, in good matchups, you can use him. I, I streamed him against Oakland, uh, like a week or two ago, worked out fine. Uh, but, uh, for the most part, no, those guys aren't like super intriguing for me. The third quartile looks to me a little bit more interesting. We have three guardians, Peyton Battenfield, who's been sent back down. Logan Allen, you mentioned, been sent back down. Gavin Williams, who was the last man called up, as well as A.J. smith Shaver and Emmett Sheehan in Los Angeles. I was interested in the Williams thing because every expert I read said he was the best pitcher in the guardian system. And yet he was the last one they called up. Do you have any idea why they did it that way? Um, I just, I think that he wasn't quite as polished. The stuff is really, really good. And I think um, that eventually when we we look back, uh, you know, maybe two years down the road, we're going to be like, wow, why was this even a question? Because Gavin Williams is, uh, I think, has the stuff to be an elite pitcher. Uh, I think we also forget, though, um, that... Uh, the Guardians aren't a traditional pitching franchise. They don't value stuff nearly as much as they value command and control. And I think that's why Bybee and um, 
uh, and Logan Allen were up first is because they've got better command and control. And that's, you know, you look at guys like Shane Bieber, you know, Zach Plesak before he got DFA'd, uh, you know, these guys who like came up and uh, they weren't these overpowering rookie pitchers. They just know how to pitch. Um, and that's what the Guardians have a value pass. So it wasn't super surprising to me um, in general that they went uh, with Bybee and Logan Allen first. But ultimately, especially with the injuries that they've had and kind of some un- under the underperformance they've had with guys like Quantrill and, uh, and Zach Plesek, it was a matter of time. Like they, you know, if this team's going to be competitive, it's going to be with Gavin Williams helping uh, kind of stabilize that rotation. And I do think out of those guys that you mentioned that he is the dude that you want on your roster. Did you think that after two bad starts in three tries, he's got an 095 whip, but his strikeout rate's only 17%, 8% walk rate gives him a 9% strikeout minus walk. We're usually looking for something in the high teens or twenties. Any concern there with those numbers? No, not, not in particular. I mean, I, I think we've, I think, if you've watched the starts, um, you've seen the glimpses of uh, what uh, he's made of. And while the I, the first start, I kind of throw out completely. Um, honestly, I mean, you know, first major league debuts can be really, really scary for guys, even if you're going up a bad team like he went up against uh, in that first start. I think he's going to be fine. I think he's going to be really good. Uh, there will be bumps because, again, the command and control are not – uh, completely polished, uh, and sometimes he has a hard time commanding that really good stuff. So I think there there will be bumps in the road, but I do think that at the end of the day, he's the best pitcher that comes out of that rotation. Smith Shaver was also sent back to the minors. I thought I read somewhere recently that they actually recalled him. I don't know about that. Uh, between him and Emmett Sheehan of the Dodgers, uh, who do you like? Oh, I... I think they're both kind of short-term prospects in terms of this year. Uh, I think both both teams are going to be looking for help in their rotations uh, come the trade deadline. Uh, the Dodgers, for me, just know what they're doing with pitching. Um, and Sheehan had, was really, really impressive in the minors um, and has been uh, and shown the glimpses of that at the major league level. I, I think that there are, again, going to be kind of bumps for a guy like Sheehan. Um, and there is some risk that at some point he does get sent back down because I do think that once the Dodgers get healthy and look to add to this rotation uh, at the end of July, that he could get bumped out. But if I'm not caring about the future and I'm just caring about right now, I think she is the guy I'm going with. The second quartile of young pitchers has uh, Taj Bradley of Tampa, Reese Olson of Detroit. He just came up. Tanner Bybee, we talked about a minute ago, and Bobby Miller of the Dodgers. I like all four of these guys, but what about you? I like all four of them too. Um, I think Miller is my favorite. Uh, Miller has just got unreal stuff in uh, the ability to command and control. Uh, it, I think um, Miller was one of those guys who was a top-tier prospect when he was drafted. There were some injury concerns around whether or not he was going to be able to stay healthy, whether he's going to be Tommy John at some point. I think that really busted him down a lot of prospect lists and people kind of forgot about him, but uh, he's been amazing, um, you know, at times uh, even in, in the majors. Uh, and I think he, unlike Sheehan, Sheehan will probably 
lose his job at some point. I don't think Miller does as long as Miller's healthy. And when you, I know the Dodgers aren't like the Dodgers we we've known in recent years in terms of like how potent their offense can be, um, or even how you know stable their bullpen can be. But they're still the Dodgers, and they're still the class in the National League until someone dethrones them. Uh, and so I want a guy who's got that Dodgers offense behind him and pitching for that organization. So for me, for me. Bobby Miller is a cut above the rest, but I also like Tanner Bybee quite a bit. Um, and I, I can fully admit I was wrong on him. I did not see him being as good as he's been. And and I do think he can continue it. He, he does a good job of pitch mix and sequencing. And, um, and the, the Guardians, like I said, are a really good pitching organization that don't rely just on guys throwing their best stuff necessarily, but teaching guys how to to work in the zone and out of it. The other two guys, Taj Bradley and Reese Olson, I think there's a team context that we have to take into account. Mm -hmm. Of course, Tampa is fairly notorious for their shenanigans that they pull with their starting pitchers, especially young guys up and down, um, move to the bullpen for a while, be an opener for a while. And then Reese Olson's in Detroit, which is a, you know, year in, year out, not a great team to be pitching for, as all of us Michael Lorenzen owners know. Are you concerned when you get these young pitchers? How much of a weight do you put on the team or the organization that they're involved with? I mean, I think I put a, I probably put too much weight on it, um, and uh, I think we we all we all put a little bit too much weight as an industry on like how good organizations are in terms of developing pitching uh, and developing their prospects, and then unfairly penalize the ones that. Um, uh, aren't good at it. Uh, uh, but there's a reason why, because Tampa Bay has been consistently good at kind of developing these prospects. Uh, and uh, the Dodgers have been particularly good. But I mean, it wasn't that long ago. And I think I mentioned this on a recent episode with uh, with Paul. Like it wasn't that long ago when everybody was talking about Pittsburgh being the place where pitchers go to excel. And and then all of a sudden, blanking on the the, the coach's name who who's responsible for all this love, like like everyone in the industry turned on him and all of a sudden he didn't know what he was doing. Oh, they got to need to get rid of him and he got fired. And it's like, and they're like, I, I think we give these organizations probably more credit than they deserve. Um, you know, and we tend to, I mean, it's a lot like if you are a poker player, um, uh, you know, uh, or, or, a, or a gambler in general, maybe even a fantasy player, it's really easy to remember our biggest wins um, and uh, and a lot harder to remember our kind of um, not necessarily biggest losses, but our consistent losses, right? Like we, we can tell you, oh, man, this one time I would, you know, I, you know, I, I came back from fourth place uh, to win my league in the last week of the season. Um, and, uh, and, but we don't talk about, we, we try not to remember the time we were in first place in, in, in the end of August and, and end up not cashing in our league. Right. So I think we do kind of the same thing. Like we remember all the wins that organizations like Tampa Bay has had, like the Dodgers has had, and then we completely ignore the ones that when they've messed up or when they've, you know, or guys haven't panned out because ultimately it comes down to the pitcher, Right. Pitchers definitely are molded by organizations, but they have to they have to be able to go out and execute, and that's not the easiest thing. Baseball is the hard pitching is the hardest thing to do in any sport, um, I think. So, was that Pirates pitching coach you were uh, Ray Searage? 
Yes, yes, yes. That, yeah. that was it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, boy, talk about a turnaround. At one point he could do no wrong. And then the mm-hmm. next thing, you know, I think he's out of baseball. It, it just, yeah. he fell off the, off the face of the earth there. Now, our top group is a couple more Millers. We had Bobby Miller. We now also have Mason Miller and Bryce Miller. Both of them are on the IL. I think Mason Miller might be done for the year. Yuri Perez, you mentioned. Uh, I mentioned Brian Wu and Andrew Abbott of the Reds. How would you rank these five top to bottom? Miller, Miller, Perez, <sighs> Abbott, and Wu. I think I go Perez first. Um, then I go Bryce Miller. Oh, no. Uh, man. Um, yeah, Bryce Miller, Abbott, uh, Wu, and then Mason Miller. I really like the top four. The top four. I mean, I, I like all five in general, but... Mason Miller's health. Like, I just, I just trust it. None. Like I, there's, there's, you know, and so like when people were dropping triple digit bids and thousand dollar fab leagues on him, I was just like, what, what are you guys doing? This guy's not pitched a lot of innings ever because he's been unable to stay healthy. And, and we got a few really good outings from him and then he got hurt. Um, and so like, I have no faith that he's going to be able to come back healthy and be as dominant as he was. Um, but uh, Yuri Perez, I think, is legitimately um, an ace in the making. I, you know, um, I love what Miami has done with him. Uh, I love the fact that they they uh, decided to just bring him up and not say, "Oh, we're going to slow roast him in the minors," like we've seen other organizations do with their top tier pitching prospects. Um, and I love that he is learning while he's up. Like, he, you know, Sandy Alcantara has taken a real shine to him and really tried to help him. And I think he, he's doing a really, really good job of, of uh, maximizing that growth potential. Uh, Bryce Miller, uh, another guy I was wrong on. Like, I really didn't think that he was going to be uh, as fantastic as he's been. Um, and, I, you know, I do think there are issues with control and command at times. Um, that pop up from here and there. And so there probably will be speed bumps. It's a really good place to pitch. I think Seattle's got to be a better team than they, they were in the first half. There's just too much talent there. Uh, Wu, another guy I was wrong on. I just, again, like I was really worried about command control, but he has been unreal good uh, since that first bad start. Uh, and uh, I just completely whiffed on on uh, how good he uh, has been. But in another guy that we talked you know talked about earlier, that would not have gotten a shot had it not been for all the issues in, in, in with injuries in Seattle. So, uh, you know, good on them for, for pushing a guy like Wu. I remember when Yuri Perez's name first came up, one of the big worries that the experts were talking about was the pitch limit or the innings limit that the, that the team was likely to impose on him because he's so young, didn't have a track record of a lot of innings underneath him. And then when you talk about Abbott, He's uh, got that and the really difficult park for most pitchers to pitch in. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, Wu, I think there was also some concern about innings limits. How do you, when you're looking at guys that you're thinking of adding to your roster, how do you account for these sort of external factors that you have to take into account, but how much do you have to take them into account? I, I mean, I think you have to take them into account on a case-by-case basis. And I think this is the hard thing for... Uh, a lot of fantasy managers and even fantasy analysts to kind of account for because I think the easy analysis is go, oh, you know, they're going to be limited. They're, you know, they're not going to, uh, they're not going to be given full board because they're young. They haven't thrown a lot of innings. But I think you start with the track record of an organization. Um, and if you look at Miami specifically, 
their track record is to not waste bullets in the minor leagues. Their track record is to push starting pitchers, let them get up and throw. Uh, and I mean, you know, we saw this backfire with like Sixto Sanchez, right? Like guy who just seemingly burned his arm out uh, because of, in part because of the usage uh, that he was getting early on in the career. But I think this, you know, kind of, and, but they haven't stopped doing that. And it proves the point. Like they were going to give Yuri a long leash and there's been talk that they, he might get sent down at some point to kind of limit his innings because they've been competitive. But that's another thing to really look at when you're examining some of these teams. Like yeah, a month ago when the name Andrew Abbott really started getting talked about in fantasy circles, I was, I was very much like, I don't want the command and control, but I also don't love what potentially the Reds might do with him in terms of innings because they're not competitive. Well, now they're competitive. A month later, we're like, what? The, this red team turned it on and turned it up a notch. And so now they may kind of reverse course and be more aggressive because they have to figure out their pitching until they get Hunter Green and Nick Lodolo back. And so I think it's very, very important to look at each situation individually and kind of make a determination based on the team's track record, um, you know, the individual player and where they're at in the standings. So those standings matter to, you know, how they're going to use players. I watched Andrew Abbott pitch the other day and what struck me about him, and these are the kind of things that I think we have to be really wary of taking into account. He looked like he'd been on a major league mound for 10 years. He just looked like a veteran out there. He was unflappable. Uh, Bad things happened and he didn't uh, blow his stack or look frustrated at all. Just give me the ball. I'll throw another pitch. And he was just, he looked very professional out there. And I know those are the kind of things that we fool ourselves into the narrative, right? And so I wonder about that kind of stuff. But yeah, I would put Perez at the top of this list for sure as well. I, I think the other four are pretty close. Uh, I do like it, the way Andrew Abbott looked though. And I think that would play a role. If I had, uh, if somebody said you can have any of them, but except for Perez, I'd probably take Abbott just because I like the cut of his jib, as the saying goes. Uh, I also looked at the top second year guys who are are interesting to me so far. There were 10 of them, but they're less than 30 innings behind all 119 first-year guys, and their combined DRA is almost half a run better. So there's uh, something to be said for that first year of experience and then coming into your own in the second year. The top five that I found were Braxton Garrett, another Miami pitcher, George Kirby, another Seattle pitcher, uh, Brian Bayo, Hunter Brown, and Bryce Elder. And I'm wondering, out of those five guys, when you're putting together your uh, starting pitcher list for next season. Who can you see out of those five guys burbling up to the top? Oh, I, I've been so impressed by Braxton Garrett. Um, I mean, Me he's too. a guy that I think people forget, like he was a top tier pick. Like this was not like a, a guy that emerged out of nowhere, but he just, you know, struggled with consistency and injury in the minor leagues. Uh, and I th- again, because he doesn't have overpowering stuff, uh, people kind of forgot about him. And kind of dismissed him when he came up. There, were, like when when Braxton Garrett uh, debuted, there was no like, "Hey, former first round pick, you know, former top pitching prospect." Everybody kind of just like, "Oh, it's that guy." And I think it's partly because partly because like the Marlins just have all these pitchers, young pitchers that are like really, really interesting and really good, um, that people just kind of overlooked him. But I think he was one of the main reasons why they were able to just like send away Pablo Lopez, right? Was they had this this kind of this guy who is a lefty who um, is much more deceiving than I think the pure stuff indicates uh, with his, with his uh, with his motion and his mechanics. Um, 
and I think he's a guy that uh, he's, I don't know that he's ever going to be a, you know, SP one, as we will say, but like, I think he like, you know, SP three, that, that just like is a glue guy in a fantasy rotation uh, for years to come. I, you know, I think he's a guy that will probably get overlooked uh, a little bit uh, too much coming into draft season next year. And I'm, I'm excited to uh, make sure I've got a lot of Bra- uh, Braxton Garrett. Are there any pitching prospects left in the minors that you're interested that you think might get a call up before the end of the year and possibly have potential to be difference makers? Um, I, I, I really, really believe that Grayson Rodriguez is going to be really good. Um, and he has been really good in AAA since getting sent back down. I think he, you know, I think what the fantasy community industry, um, does to prospects who come up and fail uh, is bury them. And I think that a lot of people, and I think it's unfair, um, you know, baseball is really, really hard. Uh, pitching is extremely hard to do. Um, and uh, especially when you're a rookie that makes the opening day roster and has had as much publicity as a guy like Grayson Rodriguez um, did, like, there was a lot of pressure, undue pressure on him to succeed right away in an organization that's tr- really trying to make a push right now with their young talent. Um, I think he's going to come up at some point here in the second half and just be fantastic. Uh, and if someone in, he's probably not available in like 15 team leagues, maybe not even a lot of 12 team leagues, but if someone dropped him in your shallow format or is willing to trade him right now, like, I would do it in a heartbeat. I really think he has got amazing stuff, really good command and control, pitches in a fantastic uh, ballpark that will help protect any mistakes he does make, um, and on a team that is really on the upswing and, and should be competing in October. Well, Justin, this has been really interesting so far. Uh, let's take a break. I'll go do some news with Ray Murphy, and then we'll come back in a couple of minutes and finish this discussion talking about some young hitters. Sounds great. Justin Mason writes for Friends with Fantasy Benefits, Rotographs, and Fantasy Pros, and appears regularly on multiple fantasy baseball podcasts. He'll be back later to talk about the year of young hitters and his rest-of-season boons and banes. Coming up, we have our Market Watch Player News Reports with Ray Murphy next on Baseball HQ Radio. Right now, though, it's time in the show when I get to let you know about an item of the great content that lets us say BaseballHQ.com is the best fantasy baseball website in the business. In the Facts and Fluke Spotlight, analyst Matt Cederholm shines the light on the so far disappointing season of Washington shortstop Trey Turner. Facts and Fluke Spotlight is another great resource at BaseballHQ.com. And before I forget, I want to let you know about a special roundtable edition of our podcast on Monday during the All-Star break with Ray and Todd Zola. We'll talk about our top stories of the season, our mid-season awards, and more. The Mid-Season Roundtable, Monday on Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Time now for our weekly news review and update. And here with the latest is Ray Murphy, co-general manager, projections expert, writer, and analyst at BaseballHQ.com. Ray, welcome back to the show. Glad to be here, PD. Happy Friday. 
Happy Friday to you, too, and we'll start in Houston. Not so happy a Friday for them. In our Playing Time Tomorrow roster forecasting, Jock Thompson took his weekly look at all five teams in the American League West, and one of the situations he discussed was what looks like a pretty fluid situation in their outfield and DH slots, and that's before all the roster shenanigans that are going to go on with the repeat IL stint for Jose Altuve. So what was Jock's analysis of that outfield DH situation? Yeah, this has been sort of a situation in waiting or purgatory kind of all season long with uh, Michael. You know, we, they've sort of been waiting since the spring for Michael Brantley's eventual return, and that was going to be what stabilized that DH spot at least. But Brantley's return keeps getting pushed back. Uh, I believe Dusty Baker used the word he's plateaued in his recovery this week. So I, I think we have to start asking the question whether we're going to see Michael Brantley at all. Um, and as important as that, um, as he is to that lineup, you know, especially providing some uh, some balance from the left side against an otherwise right-handed leading lineup, I think the possibility exists that we're just not going to see Brantley at all. And of course, uh, further complicating the situation is Jordan Alvarez was playing some outfield, playing a lot of DH, and he's out, and we're not quite sure when he's coming back. So uh, I guess Brantley actually not being there helps clarify things a little bit, but with Alvarez out, who is going to be playing in that Houston outfield? That's right. By process of elimination, we start to get closer to the right number of players for the available chairs, right? Um, because and you mentioned the Altuve injury, which I have not yet determined. I wrote that up for playing time today, this morning. I have not yet determined if that's just uh, an extended all-star break vacation or if Altuve is going to miss time coming back um, and the uh, coming back from the break. And the Astros may not know that either. But for the short term, at least this weekend and perhaps after the break, it's as we saw at the beginning of the season, it's Mauricio Dubon to second base, which takes Dubon out of the outfield role, which leaves sort of left field and center field for the combination of Chaz McCormick and Jake Myers and Corey Jolks in a three guys for two spots kind of rotation. And Yiner Diaz has basically claimed the DH role until Alvarez gets back just because Diaz has been smoking the ball. I noticed that uh, Jock Thompson said manager Dusty Baker has some favorites in that outfield competition and some uh, non-favorites, shall we say. That's exactly right. You know, Jock, I think as I was reading this, found the same quote that uh, Brent Hershey shared with me actually the other day. Um, it was, you know, for, for Chaz having a huge June, uh, uh, 823 OPS, um, eight, eight home runs, eight stolen bases uh, on the season. Um, that's earning him at least a, a good share of the playing time over Jake Myers, who wasn't hitting anywhere near that well. But the reason that that even remains anything resembling a, a job share is that comment from Baker, which, you know, disparaged um, McCormick's center field defense and overall you know, it was more than just defense. The quote from Baker was something like, yeah, I don't, you know, I, well, I've been playing out him out there because I have to, or, you know, something like that. Right. It was just, reluctantly. You know, it, it was, it was not a, uh, it was the opposite of an endorsement. Um, so, but you know, that's an, that, that it's a very backhanded way of saying, you know, saying I've played him there reluctantly is kind of the glass have empty version of, you know, he, he's, 
he's really making it hard for me to take him out of the lineup. He's like, it's kind of saying like, I really want to take him out of the lineup, but he just won't let me, right? That's right. I wish he'd play worse so I could feel better about taking him Yeah, I wish he'd go 0 for 4 so I could sit him for crying out loud. And then put Jake Myers in there to go for 0 for 18 or whatever it is. Uh, Then you have uh, Yaner Diaz, who's hammering his way into the batting order to such an extent that he's also not a tremendous defensive asset, but when a guy's OPSing 900, he plays. Uh, we got to be fairly consistent with that. And he's been playing almost every day, DH and catching. Uh, is the newly clarified situation with Jordan Alvarez coming back, as I said, is this going to get re muddied with all of these moving parts reassembling just with different names on them? Yeah, you know, there is another interesting wrinkle to that this week. You know, we've talked, we talked about that, I think, two weeks ago in our last show and talked about the Diaz versus jokes essentially battle to stick out playing time when Alvarez comes back. Um, but the, the new wrinkle this week is that Diaz caught three times in a row this week, which I think is the first time that's happened. And he continues to rake. He hit two home runs on, uh, on Wednesday and almost single-handedly uh, was the Astros offense in a, in a, uh, in a win on Wednesday. So as you alluded to earlier, we're still not clear when we're going to see Alvarez again. So this is kind of a theoretical discussion until Alvarez arrives. But those three games behind the plate for Diaz do kind of suggest that the that Baker might finally be willing to go for offense over defense behind the plate, put Diaz behind the plate more often, which would allow Alvarez to DH when he comes back, which might allow him to DH to come back a little bit sooner, and then leave left field and center field for that Two, third, two out of three every day of Jokes, Myers, and McCormick. So um, it really seemed up until this week that Baker was play, was catching Diaz as reluctantly as he was playing McCormick in center field, right? But he's, uh, at least in Diaz's case, it seems like he might be realizing that that may be what he has to do to get his best lineup on the field when Alvarez comes back because you know let's face it we can quibble about whether Diaz could stay this hot or you know jokes is cooling off a little bit and we mentioned that Myers doesn't hasn't been hitting much but all of those guys hit a hell of a lot better than Martin Maldonado so if they want to get their best offense uh offensive nine out there there's no question that Diaz behind the plate over Maldonado is a major upgrade especially during whatever period Altuve's out because that's a big part of their offense and all of a sudden he's missing. They not only have to figure out who's going where, but they have to figure out how they're going to reshuffle the batting order because there goes your leadoff guy and you have to replace him and then you're looking at Dubon or you're looking at somebody else to go up to the top of the batting order. So it it remains kind of a, a fluid situation, at least until we know what Altuve's injury situation and return is, and until we know what Jordan Alvarez's situation and return will be as well. I noticed that uh, Jock suggested in a kind of speculative way that uh, it wouldn't be a surprise to see the Astros trade McCormick. Well, you know, if Baker's down on him, we know that Baker has uh, Baker has some sway there. I mean, we can remember back to last trade deadline when I, I, I think it eventually came out that it was Baker himself who I think vetoed the uh, the Wilson Contreras acquisition for the Astros. So if he's got a voice in uh, trade discussions, maybe he might be saying like, "Ah, offer him McCormick, see if that works. Offer him McCormick, see if that works. Give him McCormick, see if that works. It, uh, 
it's an interesting situation for Houston because they've been struggling all year, really, and we keep waiting for them to finally get a solid, settled lineup that they can put out there most days with some confidence and some continuity because so far they haven't been able to do that. And it's been reflected in their offense, frankly, and in their position in the standings as well. Although, of course, pitching has played a part in that also. uh, Let's go over to another Texas team, another American League West team with an outfield DH crowd, the Texas Rangers. And again, Jock Thompson looking at this and playing time tomorrow. What does he say should be happening with the Rangers? Yeah, good stat from Jock here that uh, he noted that Texas is the um, highest scoring team in the majors. And in terms of OPS, they're number two to the Braves. So clearly this is an elite offense. And the funny thing about it that he points out is that they're doing that without what should without production from what should be the easiest spot in the lineup to get production from. That, of course, being the DH hole. They are 26th of 30 teams in production from the DH spot. So you would think that would be an an easy way to make a really good offense even better. And if you look at what they've been doing with that spot so far, you know, it's been a revolving door of Robbie Grossman and Brad Miller, Ezekiel Duran, Mitch Garver when he's healthy and not catching. Um, And as you can tell by four guys adding up to 26th out of 30 in the majors, none of them have been very good. Uh, Grossman is a 675 OPS um, which actually has been better when he's DHing and and worse when he's been in the outfield, which is a point in his favor. But you know, small samples apply there. Um, Miller has only been a DH, and he's been uh, rocking a 637 OPS in small sample size in between IL stints. Garver missed two months um, j- just after the start of the season uh, with a strained knee. He came back and. Um, he's been splitting time between catcher and DH. I noted that he uh, he picked up his 10th game catching finally this week. So he's now catcher eligible for your 10-game in-season eligibility. Um, and he's been getting a fair amount of time as D- at DH lately, but the bat hasn't really come around yet. And he's got the opposite problem from Grossman is that he's been hitting better when he's catching than when he's DHing. And Jonah Heim's been hitting better than him either and way. You can't hit, you, and you can't sit Jonah Heim. So exactly, that becomes... Um, you know, Heim's been great and been switch hitting and, you know, for, and is with good reason the primary catcher. So, uh, and of course, Garver's got a long history of getting dinged up behind the plate between concussions and other injuries. So I'm sure they don't want to just swap and have Garver handle the bulk of the catching because yeah. inevitably, if you do that, you're going to lose Garver. So they're kind of in a box here. And you mentioned Ezekiel Duran. He has a 900-ish OPS. Uh, it's pretty heavily weighted towards right-handers. So uh, I wonder if there's going to be some platoon platooning going on here as we look ahead. How do you think it's going to shake out? Yeah, that is entirely possible. And the other guy who you know factors in here is Travis Jankowski, who's been you know playing pretty well in left field, but has a reverse platoon split in a small sample. He's been you know, hitting well lefty on lefty, which um, you would not expect to continue. All of that squeezes Miller and Grossman, you know, quite a bit. So I think it's probable that at some point Miller ends up off the roster because he's really limited to DH work and hasn't been hitting, which, you know, I don't know if you heard this PD, but the H and DH stands for hitting. And if you're not doing that, you're not doing, you're not doing much of anything. Um, So it's, possible that you clear him off the roster and then maybe they go with a Duran Grossman platoon with a little bit of Garver still jumping between 
behind the plate once or twice a week and DHing a couple times a week. Um, but it's also possible as Jock wraps up his thoughts, um, they could trade Duran, who's got some trade value for you know some much needed pitching help. They could even go out and chop around and look for you know some veteran type who could you know take the DH role and at least be one half of the platoon with it with one of these other guys. Um, so I would say there's sort of a shadow looming for all of these guys, you know, first Miller, but then, you know, on a, you know, if they, if they pick up hitting reinforcements on this team, either Grossman or Garver could get squeezed as well. In Los Angeles, the Angels placed outfielder Mike Trout on the 10-day IL. He had surgery this week to repair a hamate bone fracture. The news coverage is now talking about four to eight weeks. Most of the analysis I've seen, Ray, has been more towards the eight-week end of that spectrum rather than the four-week end. It's certainly a devastating blow for an Angels team that is six and a half games out of the lead in the AL West, three and a half games out of the wild card, but there's four or five teams between them and the last wild card spot. So they're in a pretty difficult pickle as it is. They also have to worry about what Shoy Otani thinks about all this stuff because, of course, he's a free agent at the end of the season and they'd sure like to keep him around. So there's a lot of things going on with the Angels. Jake Crumpler covering the story for playing time today at BaseballHQ.com. What happens with Trout out of the action in the Angels outfield? Yeah, obviously pretty significant ripple effects here. Um, in terms of the roster spot, first of all, it was Joe Adele who got the call up. and We gave him uh, a, a 15% playing time bump upon arrival on the roster. You know, we've gone through the Adele um, roller coaster a couple of times this year. Uh, he's going to play some now, um, at least on the short side of the platoon against left-handed pitching. Um, Hunter Renfro, who you know had been the uh, – the stable piece of this outfield and right field, you know, is still a, a lineup fixture, but he's now forming part of the first base platoon with uh, Mike Moustakis, uh, who's been in Anaheim for all of about 15 minutes now, um, after the um, Gio Urshela got hurt, Jared Walsh was ineffective and got sent back down. So they're patchworking first base over there. Now it's a Moustakis-Renfro tag team. Um, Renfro should have uh, 10 games at first base, if not before the All-Star break, then shortly after. Um, it, that leaves Mickey Moniak for center field. He's the best defensive option out there. Um, and he's also made a fair amount of appearances at the leadoff spot in front of, well, it was Trout and Otani, but now it's just Otani. Um, so he'll probably, you know, he might even get some uh, lefty versus lefty starts because he is the best defensive center fielder on the roster now. So he gets a playing time bump as well. After that, Eduardo Escobar has been here for 20 minutes longer than Moustakis. Um, but Brandon Drury is also on the IL, this Angels team that accumulates spent all season all off season accumulating so much depth uh compared to prior years is now using all of that depth with all of these guys gone so escobar takes over sort of the jewelry role at second and third um and just in case you want to get even deeper down the depth chart here uh they plucked uh old friend daniel murphy out of the independent leagues a couple of weeks ago um and they've got him on a minor league deal um hasn't been seen in the major since 2020. He's now 38 years old, but um, obviously Otani still clogs up the DH spot here, but if Murphy could, you know, play some first base, maybe he gets a call up sometime after the break. Uh, again, uh, the angels 
for all of the depth they've accumulated are taxing every bit of it right now. I looked at uh, Murphy's track record. He had a couple of OPS seasons over 900, but the last one was six years ago. And as you mentioned, he's 38 years old. He hasn't played in the big leagues for three years now. I don't even know why they would pick up a Daniel Murphy, frankly, but I guess we'll, we'll see. Maybe they hope he comes in and gets a few base hits and settles the clubhouse or something. I'm not sure. Before we go on, Ray, how much do we know from the research side of things or from the actual factual side of things, how losing a top bat like Trout in this situation affects the fantasy values of all the other guys in the lineup? Um, off the top of my head, I don't, I, I think it's one of those situations where you could quantify it in terms of projections. You're swapping out Trout's, you know, projected 900 something OPS in a lineup with, you know, pick Adele as the most likely replacement. And he's, uh, you know, probably projected for a 700 OPS or something like that. You can figure out what the expected impact is, but in a sample size of a four to four to eight week absence for Trout, I think the story is that the error bars are just too wide. As our friend Joe Sheehan says, variance swamps everything in this situation. And you might know what, what you expect the impact to be, but Joe Adele could go bananas for those six weeks. Or if Daniel Murphy comes back and actually, you know, shows more life with the bat than we expect, and the Angels somehow manage to hold it together until the trade deadline, and then suddenly, you know, Trout's rumored to be back ahead of schedule or whatever. There's a – I don't mean to dismiss the question. There is, a, you know, an actual on-paper impact here, but I think the what the impact is to the Angels' lineup on the field over the next six weeks, you know, is still – a wide range of outcomes and the range is lower now than it was with trout, but it could still fall in a lot of places on that spectrum. Let's go over to some American league pitchers and we'll start in Texas baseball HQ analyst Corbin Young's facts and flukes performance validation article this week, looked at five American leaguers and one of them was Rangers left-handed starter, Andrew Heaney, one of the truly frustrating guys for fantasy managers. I don't know if you've had him on many of your rosters. I certainly have. And it's enough to make you want to pull, uh, in my case, what little hair you have left out of your head because he's bouncing back and forth one year. He's got kind of low positive value season. The next year he's got a negative value season. The one after that he's injured the whole year and doesn't get any kind of season. What does uh, Corbin Young say about Heaney's frustrating track record? Yeah, not only is he frustrating on a multi-year basis, but I do have him in a couple of places this year, and he's frustrating on a start-to-start basis, too. Um, so he's really checking all the boxes in that scenario. But, you know, Corbin uh, does a great job of trying to stick to uh, stick to the facts, as it were, in facts and flukes here, and give us the, uh, you know, the, 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 the shall we say, the dispassionate overview. Um, and, you know, he, t- t- just to reset, you know, he, in that sort of up-and-down career path he's had, he needs... 2022 was among his best seasons. He had a 310 ERA, a 109 whip uh, in 73 injury interrupted innings with a 29% K minus BB, which is elite. Um, And in 83 innings this year, so roughly the same amount of work already as he got all of last year, he's got a 412 ERA, a 128 whip. And a 15% came on as BB, which, you know, check my math here, PD, but that's about half of what it was last year, which is uh, less elite. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, 15%, 20. Yeah, you're right, half. 
<laughs> going in the wrong direction. Uh, and, you know, so when you, you know, as we do in facts and flukes, you know, there's a little bit of, uh, you know, Sesame Street, you know, one of these things is not like the other. And you know, Corbin's uh, Cor Corbin notes that it's that that really strong 2022 season that looks like the outlier. Um this year, that 412 ERA is backed by a expected ERA that is right in line with it. He's back to walking more people. He's thrown. He's got a 38% ball rate, which supports the walk rate. Um, and his career rate is 35. So he's never really been anything near a pinpoint control guy. And basically, he's, he's back to that getting him in trouble, trouble that he pitched around last year, but uh, has not with with that big strikeout rate that he has not been able to uh, to carry forth this year. His swinging strike rate this year is back down to twelve percent, which is you know knocking on the door of average. Um, his slider, which was uh, super nasty last year and generated so many of those strikeouts, um, has you know has has he seems to have lost whatever it was that he had added to that slider last year. And so when you throw together a combination of the walks that we mentioned above and a lot of fly balls, sometimes the fly balls lie on the other, land on the other side of the fence. And that's happening again this year. He's got a 15% home run per fly. So add all of that together and the the slider is not the wipeout pitch. It used to be maybe, maybe batters are laying off it a little bit more and taking the walks. And then, you know, I don't care where you pitch, even in a, uh, you know, better than it used to be Texas ballpark walks and home runs are a bad combination. So Corbin's overall takeaway here is, uh, you know, kind of expect more of the same. What we're getting this year is more the real Andrew Heaney than, uh, you know, the, the, than the brief flash of brilliance we got last year. In this week's Relievers Buyer's Guide, our analyst Doug Dennis looked at relief pitchers with excellent performances in June, focusing on high strikeout minus walk rates. And one of the names on his list was a, a Texas right-hander, the setup man, Josh Sabors. I'm glad you said Spores before I did, because I was trying to figure out how to say it. So thank you for that. Um, and, <laughs> Don't you know, count on me in that regard. <laughs> but, you know, this has been a, uh, shall we say, unsettled Texas bullpen to uh, you know, throughout the first half, and kind of the um, Achilles' heel of this team, uh, Will Smith got thrust into the closer role and has been adequate there. But uh, you know, Jose Leclerc, Jonathan Hernandez, guys like that have um, you know were supposed to be big parts of this bullpen and have been just outright bad. And Spores is one of the ones who have kind of stepped into a late inning role as sort of a battlefield promotion kind of thing. Um, of course, the Rangers added a role to Chapman this week, which um, is probably good news for the Texas bullpen overall. Maybe bad news for Spores in the sense of that's one more guy in front of him for, you know, if you wanted to hope, hope for him to work his way into an eventual saves role. Um, and now they've got two guys with the uh, the dreaded, you know, proven closer tag ahead of, the, ahead of him and Chapman and Smith. Um, but you know, don't forget Chapman and Smith are both left-handed and Spores is kind of the, uh, kind of the premier righty in this pen now. Um, so if you get into deeper leagues, you know, AL only especially, it's at least a good Lima skill set. you know, striking out 12 guys per nine with a reasonable walk rate of around three per nine. He's got the ground ball rate working over 50%. That's keeping the ball in the park. Um, the, uh, the 393 ERA isn't great, but, um, you know, the skills say that 393 ERA could be under three. So it's a, it's a good right-handed setup man skill set with, 
you know, maybe chance for ancillary saves just because everyone who's as good or better than him in that bullpen is left-handed. That's about how I read it as well. There might be some saves there, but they really seem to like him in those super high leverage roles late in the game. And he comes in, shuts the door, and then they hand the ball to Aroldis Chapman to get an easy three-out save or, or Will Smith, as you mentioned. So um, I like Josh Sabors. I don't know that there's going to be a lot of saves there, but uh, you got to like the other contributions that he makes. Probably not so much, as you said, in a 15-team situation or 12-team especially. Uh, no room for a guy who doesn't get saves in those contexts. Uh, back over to the National League and some hitters. And let's start with uh, breaking news. Just heard about this this morning. Uh, Corbin Carroll was taken out of the game for the second time in a week. He's got some kind of deal going on with that right shoulder, and he's going to have uh, an MRI today, as I understand it, Friday as we speak. And uh, I guess until we get that MRI result, or until they get the MRI result and share it with us, probably more accurate to say, uh, what do you think we know about Corbin Carroll and what does it mean for his value and for his future immediate and long-term? This story sort of started or, you know, mid, midway last week when he first uh, injured his shoulder and then he missed the weekend and came back. Um, if I'm not mistaken, he hit a home run. I think it was on the 4th of July against the Mets. Um, so he was back in the lineup. He hit a home run and we thought maybe we dodged a bullet here. But now he leaves the game again last night with the same shoulder problem, as you say, going for follow-up imaging today. I certainly have to think he's out for the weekend, and they'll give him the all-star break to pull it together. Best-case scenario, that's even if the image shows nothing. Uh, but it's um, you know the concerning thing is here, this is not just a one-time thing. Uh, he had uh, surgery in his shoulder back in May 2021, so certainly – you know, some concern about recurrence or, you know, chronic problems there. And, you know, Carol is such a, uh, such a talent, such a um, broad base of skills and really taking the league, taking the league by storm this year that, you know, any concern here, I think even if he's in the lineup next Friday night, best case as we start the second half, I think we've still got to be a little bit worried about him going forward just because of the, um, you know, this is now, two incidents in a week with the same shoulder that is, you know, just two years away from being surgically repaired. So I will be curious to see uh, Matt Cedarholm's worryometer on Carol uh, in in his next edition of the Big Heart column, because my worryometer is climbing sort of by the hour here. Yeah, mine too. I don't even have any shares of Corbin Carroll, but he's so good for the game and so exciting of a young player. You really look forward to seeing him do well. But as you said, it's kind of axiomatic when you talk about injuries that if you have an injury, that's bad. If you have the same injury again, that's worse. And if you have the same injury three times in a row and two of them are a week apart, now you're really starting to worry. I'm, I'm flashing on Fra uh, Fernando Tatis Jr. Yeah, so same shoulder thing. problems, right? And and he has surgery, and then he comes back and he wrenches his shoulder, and then he and he seems to be able to find a lot of ways to to hurt it. You know, banging into a wall in the outfield, sliding into second head first. There's a lot of ways to mess with your shoulder, and and your shoulders are really important when you're hitting a baseball. So I'm really, I, I'm really quite concerned, and I'm curious if he has one more incident or if he loses, you know, three weeks in the second half this year while they try to get him back right. It's really going to affect his, his status next year when draft time rolls around because I'd been hearing, I'd take him in the top three. I'd take him oh, first overall kind of talk. And maybe that'll be muted somewhat by this uh, injury worry. 
not to go right to the worst case scenario, but yeah, I, I have the Tatis comparison in my head too. I don't think it's exactly the same thing because Tatis's injuries were, you know, that shoulder situation was, you know, one of those you dislocate it once, you're going to keep dislocating it again until you get it um, repaired thing. And I don't think that's exactly what Carroll is dealing with, but what he is dealing with is, as you say, the the importance of the shoulder to both of them is the same. And then the, you know, the repeated chronic injury is the same, even if it's not a dislocation. And yeah, you would hate to f- have to think about uh, Carroll's value for next year in the context of what if his season was over right now. Uh, that's not an easy question to answer. And as you say, he's so good for the game and such a dynamic talent that we don't want that to happen. So let's uh, let's just hope we see him in the lineup again next Friday night when we're starting the second half. And then we'll uh, we'll take it as it comes as far as whether he can hold up day to day. But, uh, you know, orange lights are flashing here for sure. And even if he does come back and is relatively healthy, then we also have to be concerned if we have – Corbin Carroll on any of our rosters, how many more days off do they give him between, uh, you know, post all-star and the end of the season? If he misses a game a week, all of a sudden that's a, you know, a sort of seven or 8% decline in, in his uh, counting stat numbers. There's a lot of things going on here with Corbin Carroll and not, not a lot of them are really good for his fantasy managers. And that's not even talking about people who have him in dynasty or keeper formats, because that's a whole nother thing you have to start calculating right away. Uh, speaking of top preseason draft picks, uh, Washington shortstop Trey Turner was a consensus top five draft pick this year. He was $28 or more in 15 team mixed in each of the past five seasons, $38 or more in each of the last three power speed batting average, the whole package. And so far this year, $16 worth so far, not first round value, uh, HQ analyst Matt Cederholm dug into Turner in this week's Facts and Flukes Spotlight Research Report. What nuggets of coal or gold did Matt unearth in his digging? Yeah, there's a lot going on here. Uh, it was a great subject for uh, Facts and Flukes Spotlight because you get not just into Turner's individual skills, but also some of the trends around the game. Um, you know, obviously Turner's calling card skill is the stolen bases, and the good-ish news is that he's still on pace for... 34 stolen bases, which is well within his normal range. And his success rate is still 100%. So he's still got elite stolen base skills. There's no erosion of that. Um, And the underlying metrics back that up. Statcast speed metrics are still 90th percentile. But you kind of get into the macro trends, as I I mentioned there. And the problem is that though even a 34 stolen base pace is not as helpful from a fantasy fantasy perspective as it was last year, just because stolen bases are up somewhere between what 40 and 50% around the game this year. So those 34 stolen bases are, you know, that was probably top five in the league last year and it's nowhere near that this year. So relative to what you thought you were getting in terms of the marketplace, those stolen bases from Turner are less impactful. What was supposed to mute that and what made Turner such a appealing early first round or you know 30 plus dollar target is that he's not a one-trick pony and that the stolen bases are sort of the anchor of a very broad skill set. The problem is the rest of the skill set has atrophied, and that's what Matt spent most of the time in this article looking at. Um He's batting 249 this year, which would be his lowest since 2018 by a lot. And of course, that 
ties back to the stolen bases above, he's getting on first base less, so he's stealing less. Um, he's on a 17 home run pace that would also be his low, lowest since 2017, other than the COVID season that we throw out. Um, and if you if Matt goes under the hood and looks for why the batting average or power are down, he comes to a pretty clear answer. Um, Turner's 74% contact rate is the lowest in his career, but this is the third year of decline in a row for that. Um, his power index has also dropped to under 100, 100 being league average. Uh, so now he's got below average power as well, although the underlying power skills in terms of expected power don't look that bad. And of course, the Philadelphia ballpark should help prop that up, even if his skills do settle at an average-ish level. Um, Matt went deeper looking for even more answers or more of a smoking gun here. He looked at month-to-month -month splits and didn't really find any trends there. Um, in terms of stat cast, quality of contact, and power metrics, kind of the same theme of erosion, but not um, not cratering there as well. Um, what the, the one thing that was cratering that uh, that jumped out in Matt was Turner's stat cast chase percentage, you know, swing, swinging out of the zone, basically. Um, and that uh, has significantly deteriorated two years in a row now so for 21 to 23 it's gotten you know that's gotten really bad uh swing swinging more both in and out of the zone um he's now ninth percent as in nine out of 100 in chase rate so 91 percent of the batters are chasing more than he does uh, less than he does which is uh which is bad um and of course that feeds back to he's striking out more he's making He's making contact less often, et cetera. And of course, quality of contact is also suffering because in general, if you make contact on a ball that's out of the zone, you're probably not hitting it hard. The balls you hit hard are generally the ones in the zone. So chase rate is a, is bad, both in terms of generating swing and miss, but also generating pop-ups and dribblers and that sort of thing. So you take those metrics over you know, a bunch of arrows going in the wrong direction over multiple years now, or at least a, you know, a year and a half or two and a half years, 2021, 2022, and half of 2023 in terms of chase rate. And Matt's unfortunate conclusion is we have to treat this as somewhat real. You know, Turner is 30 years old. We don't often see, you know, significant declines at that age, but, um, you know, we may have to lower our ceiling for Turner's value going forward. He also took a little bit of a look at some of the possible motivations or reasons behind these declines. And he mentioned the big new contract to having to move from one city to another, those kind of personal things that go on. And we always discount them as analysts and we really shouldn't. I mean, all of us have moved for our jobs once or twice. And uh, the first little while at your new job in your new location sometimes not that great and you're not always at your best. And I wonder, that's why he looked at the month by month because he thought, you know, it's, he's had a time to settle in. Maybe it'll start getting better and it really hasn't that much. But I, I suppose if that's the root cause that there's still a possibility that he gets it straightened out and starts returning more into his form. But at this point, I guess it's definitely a wait and see. In Ryan Bloomfield's speculator column this week, he served up a speculative second half all-star team. These are guys who have only single digit dollar value production so far, but the potential for larger in the second half. And one of the names that caught my eye, a guy I've always liked is Miami first baseman, Garrett Cooper. Yeah, and of course, the thing to like about him is, you know, he's sort of a, you know, the the archetype of their professional hitter, right? Um, 
to start this year, he only had a 244 batting average with nine home runs, which doesn't really move the needle. But uh, Ryan went under the hood and saw a lot of a lot to like in the skills versus stats divide there. Uh, you know, it, it, the current hit rate that's supporting that 244 batting average is uh, 32%, which is a career low. Usually, he's more of a 35% guy career, which would boost the batting average by, you know, I don't know, 25, 30 points, uh, which, of course, would be more in line with his career 270 batting average. Um, and Cooper has already gotten hot and is experiencing some of that correction. He's got the batting average up to 255 just since Ryan wrote the piece. Um, he's also got a 113 hard contact index. Uh, that puts Cooper 13% above league average, and it's a career high for him. So he's doing nothing but hit the ball hard, essentially. Um, his power index sits only at 108, which is 8% above league average. But his expected power index, which is what we would expect based on his hard hit rate, his ground ball, line drive, fly ball mix, et cetera, is 145. So that's 45% above league average. That's a big gap. So lots of hard hit line drives and fly balls that he has not had a ton to show for yet. Um, he's playing every day now, either at first base or DH, in the middle of a Marlins lineup that – is quietly not bad anymore. Of course, Luis Araya is setting the table up top. It gives everyone more opportunities there. Um, the, the key question with Cooper is health. It seems like he's always unable to stay off the IL for more than a couple of weeks at a time. But he's got a lot of running room here. So let's see uh, if he can uh, stay in the lineup, keep hitting the ball hard, and uh, hopefully driving in Araya's on the regular. The one caveat that I noticed is Cooper's strikeout rate has snuck up. It's getting close to 30%. It's been 25%-ish the last season or two. And his walk rate's down a few points as well. So you'd like to see that get back to career norms while all the other stuff evens out so that the strikeout and walk deficiencies can't drag him backwards while all the other skills are dragging him forwards. We mentioned earlier that Houston might be in the market for a experienced DH and maybe Nelson Cruz of San Diego or formerly of San Diego might be it. Uh, the Padres designated Nelson Cruz for assignment, recalled a minor leaguer Matt Batten from AAA. Mark Gannon covered this story for playing time today. Could this be the end of the Nelson Cruz era? Yeah, it could be. At 43 years old, the Padres have been trying to utilize him as the DH against left-handed pitching. He hadn't really been uh, delivering there with a 245, 283, 399 slash line. That's a sub 700 OPS to save listeners from having to do the math. Um, and don't forget that, you know, Cruz's last year or two had been pretty rough too. There was some hope that there was a, uh, that he had eye problems and got offseason vision surgery that would have led to sort of a more successful last hurrah here in San Diego. But given this, uh, given the rough half season there with the Padres, it's, you know, even given teams like the Astros that might have a need, it's kind of hard to imagine him getting another look here. Um, as far as what we're doing with Cruz's playing time with the Padres, we're kind of, uh, what, what the Padres are saying is that with Matt Carpenter and Cruz as two kind of DH only options, they were too limited in terms of being able to use the DH to give other guys days off. So what we've done is we've spread the playing time for Cruz out among some regulars. Uh, Luis Campisano, who's going to come off the IL and get into the catching mix. Manny Machado at third. Tatis in the outfield. Rucked at Odor. Picks up some at-bats as well. 
Um, and then and then also Trent Grisham, who gets to pick up some more outfield time if Tatis gets to DH every now and then. Grisham quietly uh, showing some nice skills growth from the stat cast perspective. I was looking at him the other day. Indeed, yeah. Having a nice little uh, nice little year. And because of that, he's also sticking out more playing time there. And even lefty on lefty playing time, he's really become the everyday center field there not just the good side of the platoon guy as for batten who was called up um you know he'll be more of a utility infielder with uh be able to dropped dropped around second short and third um certainly more um versatility than uh than cruz there so he opens up some of these options for the padres to um spread the workload work excuse me workload around a little bit not a power bat by any stretch of the imagination, a 769 OPS in the minor leagues, but 27 stolen bases at AAA and 350 plate appearances. So if you see Matt Batten sneaking into the lineup every so often and your stolen base category could use a little punch up, don't forget his name, I guess, is the advice we need to give. Uh, and speaking of speed guys, although Ozzy Albies, I always thought of him as a speed guy, but he never really has been a speed guy. He scuffled last year. I had him on a roster. Injuries, all kinds of troubles. He hit 247, just eight homers and three steals, and worrisome signals in a few areas even before he got hurt. But he's been everything good this year, bouncing back. 259, 20 home runs through 351 plate appearances, six stolen bases. Greg Pyron covered Ozzy Albies in his Facts and Flukes coverage this week. What has changed to make Ozzy Albies such a solid contributor for fantasy? Yeah, we wrote him up in uh, the preseason around February and identified a couple of concerns that he has conveniently gone and addressed. Um, his contact rate and walk rate are both up a little bit this year, um, and his chase rate in particular is uh, a big improvement. We were talking about that with Turner a minute ago, and Albies is doing the opposite. Um, you know, he's chasing a lot less often and making com making his contact on balls in the zone, which is always going to lead to better outcomes. Uh, still a little pesky high, over 30%. Um, but you know, down way down from forty three percent last year. So, uh, you know, he hasn't completely solved the problem, but uh, incremental improvements um, in chase rate that have reflected in quality of contract, quality of contact, not contract, right? Uh, quality of contact metrics, uh, hard contact index, expected power, hard hit rate are all at career highs. Um, barrels also way up there. So he's laying off the worst pitches that he used to go after and as a result swinging at better pitches and hitting them hard uh interestingly that also correlates with uh you know he's also cut his first pitch swing percentage a ton so it might just be that the book on him was you know get him out on the first pitch and he has uh he has plugged that hole in his game um so his expected batting average is way up and suggests the batting average could go a little bit higher than even the, the 259 he's got right now. Um, related to that, he's you know if there's a disappointing aspect of his game so far, as you said, it's been that he only has six stolen bases through 351 plate appearances. So maybe there's some more stolen base upside there. But really, with the 20 home runs, and let's not forget, 351 plate appearances, I think last time I looked, he had played every game this year. So that's just a ton of plate appearances in a really really good lineup so the counting stats are just flowing here which is just the best news that he could end up with you know with a surge in that second half with that batting average i mean he's got he's in range of a 275 batting average with just a little bit of correction there with 35 home runs 15 stolen bases maybe only 12 but 12 to 15 steals to go with 35 home runs and you know monster numbers of runs and rbis it's just a just a really nice profile 
And you mentioned the lineup that he's hitting in. He's hitting second most of the time. And how about getting to hit behind Ronald Acuna, which everybody immediately gets worried about him stealing a base and they throw more fastballs to you. If you get on base and you got Riley and and uh, Matt Olson behind you to drive you in, uh, really you couldn't ask for a better spot for a guy to generate those counting stats, as you said. Uh, finally, let's look at some National League pitchers, Ray. Uh, start with Braxton Garrett in Miami. He's been a pleasant breakout surprise this season, 361-113 decimals. Uh, just about 100 strikeouts, but fewer than 100 innings. He came up this week in a couple of places at BaseballHQ.com. Uh, first, our starting pitcher analyst, Stephen Nickrand, included Garrett in a review of pitchers by times through the order. Yeah, and of course we know that that's a t- such a touch point in today's game, um, you know, for all pitchers, really, and that you know, the Rays and other teams that are you know, using openers or short- shortening starting pitching outings, so much of that is trying to get away from even exposing their starting pitchers to third time through the order penalties. Um, Garrett overall has been really good this year. Um, you know, he's, you know, and especially the first time through the order, he's got a 328 ERA, a 200 BPV just lights out the second time, not much erosion at all. The ERA is better at 255. Uh, the BPV is still 169, which is, you know, still up in elite territory. So through the first, you know, 18 batters of a game, he's, almost as good as they come. Um, and then a key crashes in the third time, as so many pitchers do, mm. um, d- down to an 89 BPV, which is about league average, a 473 ERA, a 158 whip. So um, it's interesting that um, he's allowed 30 earned runs. Seven of them have been third time through the order. That's 23% of his earned runs. And, you know, in which doesn't sound like a lot until you realize that it's only 16% of his innings. They don't let him pitch to the third time through that often. And when when they do, it's because it doesn't go well. So, you know, they should stop doing that at all, right? (laughs) Yeah, but if they do, that really hammers his fantasy value. So really, I think, Ray, what we would like to see is him improving his third time through performance and really ascending up to the elite level of starting pitchers. Yeah, exactly. And to that end, you get into the next analysis that we had this week where Brand Chesser took a look at Garrett in the Arsenal report where we look at pitch mixes and changes there and got in, just tried to get under the hood as to what Garrett was doing so well this year. Um, he's long been a slider first guy. He throws the slider 28% of the time. Um, and what he's done this year has gotten away from using the four-seam fastball. Uh, that was 25% last season so sort of an even fastball slider mix but what he's done is he started cutting the fastball instead to right-handers so 18 percent of the time the fastball he throws he he, he throws he now throws a cut fastball 18 percent of the time mostly to righties and the you know the forcing fastball is now down to just seven percent usage mostly against lefties um and that's been pretty that's done pretty well as uh limiting the damage off of the uh, off of the fastball but more effective against righties they're only generating 73% contact against the cutter um and it's propping up his um you know they're hitting 209 against it with a 274 woba so not you know they they're not making effective contact against it at all um but it really seems like um it's been a positive change for his four seamer to the cutter against the righties. The problem is it's, um, you know, it seems like that's a mix that 
as we said earlier, you get to the third time through the order and pitchers are starting to suss out the difference between the two and um, he, you know, getting more effective deeper into the games might involve getting a third pitch that's more effective here. Yeah, that Arsenal report is really terrific. Uh, Brant Chester does a terrific job since Tanner Smith, who kind of inaugurated the uh, Arsenal report, did such a good job that he got hired by a major league team. So the Arsenal report, I think that whole idea of pitch mix analysis is getting more and more important, not only in baseball, but in fantasy baseball as well, because you can certainly see things coming a little bit if you realize that the pitcher's using his weapons differently. That Arsenal report this week, by the way, also included uh, San Diego left-hander Blake Snell, another interesting thing. Uh, Ray, we talked about Ryan Bloomfield's second-half all-star team in the speculator column, and one of the starting pitchers he mentioned is former top prospect left-hander Mackenzie Gore, who's in San Francisco, poor results, now in Washington and doing a lot better. What is Ryan seeing with Mackenzie Gore? Yeah, you know, a, a season that was supposed to be completely lost in Washington. They're, you know, they at least have some interesting guys like this to watch. Um, Gore is quietly seems to be putting some things together. He's got a ton of strikeouts. He's got a twenty eight percent K rate um, and generating whiffs in bunches at a thirteen and a half percent swing swing strike rate through you know sixteen starts. For, you know, the first half here, um, the things that are get that are undoing the um, the success there are a home run problem, which seems to be a little fluky just in the sense that it is um, happening more often than not with runners on, you know, sometimes, you know, we talk about Garrett Cole sometimes and giving up solo home runs here and there is no big deal, but uh, giving up three run homers as Gore has been doing is a much bigger deal. Um, And earlier in the season, he was having some uh, problems with his walk rate too, but that seems to have sharpened up a little bit in the last month or so. One of the key questions with him is workload, um, and to that extent, if you're looking at him for the second half, I thought there were actually some positive developments in the last week in that he left a start early uh, last weekend with um, a blister problem, and then he came back and started last night and only pitched an inning due to rain. I think he got out of there after eight pitches. Um, so that, between the blister and the rain out and ends up being that he's going to have thrown only, you know, a couple of innings um, in July before the all-star break. So that, you know, that he probably just banked 10, 15 innings that he could have burned here in the first half of July that now he'll have available in the second half. So maybe not a bad idea to go speculating on Gore, you know, sometimes, pitchers especially young pitchers on these uh on these bad teams get glossed over on your waiver wire etc but there might be some second half value here with him yeah especially if he can figure out what's going on with those home runs and you mentioned uh, the problem seems to be with runners aboard and that always makes me think there's something going on with pitching from the stretch and i'd certainly be curious if they're doing something to address that kind of issue but i agree with ryan and with you that the pieces are definitely there for a possible breakout and depending on your team context in your fantasy situations could be a good speculation and we can't leave without updating our discussion of the Los Angeles rotation, which seems to be the uh, this year's Edward Oliveris story here at Baseball HQ Radio. Uh, every week we talk about it. The club made two bits of news this week. Uh, Dustin May, the right-hander, is going to have surgery to repair a flexor tendon in his right elbow and a Tommy John revision, they call it, for a grade two sprain of his UCL. He's definitely going to miss the rest of the season, uh, probably at least the first couple of months of next year. And the Dodgers also put left-handed all-star 
future Hall of Famer Clayton Kershaw on the 15-day IL and recalled right-hander Michael Grove from AAA. A lot of moving parts here. Mark Gannon covering the story for Playing Time Today at Baseball HQ. What does it all mean? Yeah, can we get some theme music every week for the Dodger, as the Dodgers rotation turns, you know? <laughs> I'll work on that. When we last tuned in, you know, Clayton Kershaw was on the IL. And, you know, <laughs> um, well, that could be a standing element. Exactly. But, you know, in all seriousness, I think in all of the multiple updates we've done on the Dodger rotation here, I've sort of caveated every one of them with, well, we know Clayton Kershaw is going on the IL at some point. It just hasn't happened yet. And we're finally here. I guess no surprise that it happens around the All-Star break so that they can uh, manage the damage easily and get Kershaw some downtime because, you know, with their eyes on October, we knew obviously this was coming. Uh, Not great timing in the sense that this closes the door on May, et cetera. So in terms of who's going to pitch for the Dodgers for the next couple of weeks, uh, we zeroed out May's remaining innings. We thought we might see him in August and September. We gave most of those to Emmett Sheehan, who has pitched well in two of his first three starts for the Dodgers. And you know, now, given the revolving door here, it seems like he's going to be there for a while out of necessity. Uh, Bobby Miller also was going to stick around. Uh, he is ahead of... Sheehan probably in the number four spot in that rotation now, so they don't have a lot of options. So they're gonna they're gonna have to stick with him. Uh, Kershaw, I guess the surprise is it wasn't the back; it was uh, left shoulder inflammation that shut him down recently. But I guess you know if he goes to the IL, he gets to rest the back too. So we'll see he what he, what he misses if anything other than his last two starts before the break. Uh, we'll see if he is slotted into the rotation after the break right away, even if it's in the fifth fifth spot. So the good news is they got Julio Urias back. Uh, Michael Grove got called up, as you said, and he'll fill in for the missing Kershaw starts and maybe get a turn out coming out of the break. We'll see how the Dodgers line things up, but uh, it's going to stay patchwork here for a little while, I think. With Kershaw out, they lose a 255 ERA 105 whip guy. And with Grove coming in, a 7 ERA and a 161 whip. So I think the Dodgers might think they might have work to do as they look ahead to the playoffs in particular. And we keep hearing rumors, Ray, of a Dodgers looking for a trade to get another starting pitcher. Yeah, they do. And they're they're, they're so obvious about it. Uh, But, you know, I guess they sort of can be because everybody looks at this rotation and comes to the same conclusions we do. But the Dodgers have such a... uh, you know, stacked organization and farm system too, that, uh, you know, if they decide they want to go get somebody, they can, you know, they can pay the prospect freight for it. So I guess we'll see, I guess I'll be curious to watch as we get into trade season, you know, basically right after the break here, uh, you know, the, the Dodgers may, you know, in a, in a market where it's not exactly clear who the who the sellers are going to be because so many teams are within a couple of games of the wild card that, you know, the the Dodgers might be the ones who can force a team to make a decision to get on or off the fence based on the prospect loot that they are dangling. And, you know, I'm coming at this from a provincial perspective, thinking about the Red Sox who are, you know, I think a game over 500 at the moment or two games over 500, but stuck in fifth place in the, in the American league, league East. And for, I think currently sitting in fourth in the wild card race um, with a you know, couple of teams in front of them to get even into a wild card. So then you wonder about whether they would deal with James Paxton, who's been a real, 
uh, revelation in their rotation, both in terms of health and effectiveness. And boy, you know, from a fantasy, fantasy perspective, I'd be jumping up and down to sell high uh, James Paxton before he breaks, right? So you, can, you wonder if Hein Bloom's thinking the same thing. And if he is, the Dodgers have the loot to make it happen. Um, but that's just, you know, that, that, that's just one possible angle of what I th- would imagine is going to be a very lively uh, second half of July trade period. I'm sure you and I will be discussing that over the next couple of Fridays, though. I imagine so. Uh, I was looking at the Guardians and the Marlins. I keep hearing them as the as the starting pitcher providers of choice because if they have playoff aspirations, they need offense because they're really not scoring a lot of runs at all, and they they don't have the kind of guys in the minors who can step in and immediately add something. And maybe they think that uh, Los Angeles could spare that kind of stuff. There could be some deals to be made there. Ray, thanks a million for helping us out. It's always fun, and we'll talk to you again next week. Sounds good. Thank you, PD. Ray Murphy is co-general manager, projections expert, writer, and analyst at BaseballHQ.com. Coming up, we have part two of our feature expert interview with Justin Mason. But first, let me highlight some more great resources on the Baseball HQ site. In this week's Playing Time Tomorrow features, analyst Jock Thompson looks at the five teams in the American League West, including the vanishing depth in the Seattle rotation and a revolving door in the Oakland lineup. And Dan Marcus checks out the five teams in the National League West, including potential changes in the San Diego bullpen and in the San Francisco infield. And in this week's Big Hurt Injury Analysis, Matt Cederholm has a look at Jazz Chisholm, Adam Wainwright, Jose Altuve, and all of baseball's walking wounded. And in the weekly Lineup Outlook column, analyst Greg Jewett looks at batting order changes involving Heimer Candelario, Seong Kim, and others. And by the way, Greg Jewett will be our featured guest expert on next Friday's full edition of this pod. The Playing Time Tomorrow, The Big Hurt Injury Analysis, and Lineup Outlook. Three more great resources online every week at BaseballHQ.com. Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Patrick Davitt here. Time now for part two of our feature expert interview with Justin Mason from Friends with Fantasy Benefits, Rotographs, Fantasy Pros, and multiple podcasts. Justin, welcome back to part two. Well, thank you uh, for having me. I was I was afraid that I would uh, maybe get dropped after part one. You know, uh, you, you never dropped me before, but there's always that fear. Like, he's going to come back from the news and he's just going to go, you know what, Justin, this isn't working. We're going to bring in a closer for the second half of the show. So I appreciate you sticking with me, showing some faith. I can finish this game out. Well, or a young call-up that we just uh, got <laughs> yeah, out of the exactly. minor leagues. Yeah, we, we, we talked earlier about top pitching prospects. And again, I want to look at some top hitting prospects by looking at them in tiers of the top performers this year by their skills, uh, strikeout and walk percentages, barrel rates, max EV, that kind of thing. And I just stack ranked them that way. They had to have at least 100 plate appearances. That was my rule. So I think we ended up with 32 guys. We'll quickly whip through the, the lower levels. Although interestingly, Ellie De La Cruz is at the lowest level just because of all the strikeouts and not so many walks. But he's in there with Bryce Turang, Casey Schmidt, and Manuel Valdez and Brenton Doyle. And are you at all concerned that L.E.D. La Cruz, they're going to figure him out with uh, with this enormously high strikeout rate and that he's going to have trouble maintaining the kind of offensive production he has because he's just fanning so often? I mean, I don't think that they're going to figure out 
him, figure him out. But I do think the strikeouts are just part of who he is. Like this is, he's going to swing and miss a lot. Um, you know, this is, uh, I don't think it's a lazy comparison to like talk about O'Neill Cruz because they have the same last name and, and same heritage. Like these are the, these are free swingers. These are guys who are, Hey, I'm going to put the ball in play and we're going to see what happens. Or I'm going to try to put the ball in play and see what happens. Um, and they're going to miss a lot in, in order to do that. But man, when he makes contact, the ball goes far. Like the ball just, just jumps off the bat. And he is so fast that even when he puts the ball on the ground, which he is doing probably a little bit too much, he can outrun things. Um, and so his BABIP's going to be a little bit higher than your average major league baseball player. So like, uh, you know, I think, People sometimes get um, a little bit too enamored with uh, raw tools like L.A. De La Cruz has. But I also think on the, the opposite side of the coin, some people get a little bit too enamored with like straight skills. And I think there is this is a meeting in the middle on a player like L.A. De La Cruz. Like, yes, he's going to strike out too much, um, but he's also going to light up the scoreboard for the Reds and in fantasy. And as long as the Reds sticking stick with him, I'm okay sticking with him. I am too. I'm just curious what you thought. I, I didn't get a bid in on LED La Cruz. You know what? He got drafted in, in my TGFBI league. Then the guy dropped him because he didn't get the, and I didn't realize looking at the list that he was available all that time. And somebody grabbed him up for like four bucks or something like that. Mm -hmm. I think he was going in the three hundreds in a lot of the other TGFBI leagues and NFPC leagues. Um, I think I remember you talking about Bryce Terang of Milwaukee on the Sleeper in the Bust pod with Jason Collette. What's your take on Bryce Terang? Uh, he's, I mean, a really interesting prospect. I think some people saw like some of the minor league numbers and went, oh, like this guy's going to be a potential like star, especially from a stolen base perspective at, at the major league level. I, I think he is um, a guy whose best attribute is defense. And while we don't on the surface care about defense um, in, in fantasy because we don't get defensive stats unless you're playing. I think score sheet um, is probably the only uh, 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 format that uh, cares uh, about defense. Defense is important in fantasy. And I don't think we, we talk about that enough because defense can give you a job and let you keep a job when you do struggle. And so I don't think he's ever going to be a guy. I don't think Terang is ever going to be a guy that, lights up the score sheet in the way Elias de la Cruz does. But I think what he can be is a really valuable accumulator. And those players have value uh, in fantasy. Those players win people, not just fantasy leagues, but overall content, uh, contests, because at the end of the season, you go, oh man, they scored a lot of runs. Their batting average is really impactful because they got a lot of plate appearances. And I think, Bryce Trent can be that kind of guy, but he needs the volume. And so it's really going to be dependent on can he do enough offensively to kind of um, give the Brewers a reason to continue to let him play at the major league level. Because I don't think he's one of those guys that plays three or four days a week. I think he's either playing every day or he's back down to the minors. A few more interesting names in the second quartile. Uh, Corey Jolks of the Astros. I think he's kind of old to be a, a prospect, but I'm curious what you think. Uh, Eduardo Julien in Minnesota. Anthony Volpe of the Yankees. Very controversial guy. We'll talk about that in a second. And close to your heart, a couple of giants, Patrick Bailey and Blake Sable. And let's start there. Uh, Bailey seems to have come out of nowhere to post some pretty impressive fantasy stats so far. 24 home runs, 125 RBIs, if you prorate what he's done so far. 
to 650 plate appearances. So he's he's a producer if he can keep up that pace. He's batting 330. What's your early view on Bailey's potential? You know, Bailey's an, another example of a guy, man, I just completely missed on. I was so upset when the Giants drafted him. Um, there were other guys in that draft I really wanted, and they had just taken Joey Bart the year or two before. Uh, and it's like, why? Like, why are you drafting another catcher uh, this high when you have so many other needs within the organization? But, man, they they knew what they were doing when they drafted Patrick Bailey because uh, not only has he been great offensively, even more importantly, he's been really, really great behind the plate. Um, you know, he's been one of these guys that's helping the Giants limit uh, stolen bases. He throws guys out all the time. He calls a really good game. And these things are really important because rookie catchers really struggle with um, this, you know, aspect of the game. And it's one of the reasons why we don't see catchers get promoted as quickly um, as we do other position players. Why Henry Davis is playing in the outfield and not catching in order to get into the major league level. Um, uh, and I think he is uh, a really, really good long-term piece and short-term piece for the Giants. Um uh, so I'm pretty excited about Patrick Bailey from a fantasy perspective, but also just from a real life perspective, being on my favorite team. And, you know, this, uh, we all thought Joey Bart was the heir apparent to Buster Posey, but clearly it's Patrick Bailey and jo Joey Bart, um, maybe one of the biggest regrets the Giants have not trading him uh, at the deadline last year when there were a number of suitors still really, really interested uh, in him. Cause now I don't think his value is anything at this point. <laughs> Patrick Bailey's throwing out 40% of base runners trying to steal, which is double the league average. And that's really important. Uh, I think that, like you said before, guy goes through a bit of a slump with the bat, but he's doing that much good for you with the glove. It's going to make them have a much longer leash before they say, no, we got to get this guy out and maybe put in Blake Sable behind the plate. Uh, what do you think of Blake Sable considering the fact that he now has Patrick Bailey sitting in front of him like Mount Everest? Well, uh, here's the thing about Sable. So Sable is a Rule 5 draft pick, which means in order for him to stay with the Giants organization, they have to keep him on the 26-man roster all year. And I think the only reason he has stuck on the majors this year is because of that. Um, the Giants don't want to lose them. They like him as a player, and so they'll play him in the outfield. It is clear to me that he is extremely raw and doesn't really know it either he's doing or what he even should be doing at the plate. And like one of the really great examples of this uh, that I think gets overlooked when you just look at kind of the raw numbers of things is in the game the other day where he hit two home runs, um, including a three run shot in, uh, in the ninth or the eighth inning, I think it was um, against the Mariners. He had a three, two count when he hit that home run. He was swinging for the fences in, uh, you know, in a game where his run didn't matter because uh, they were down by five runs, um, or four or five runs uh, at that point, and like so, his run didn't actually uh, tie the game. It got them within one, and he's swinging for the fences on a three-two count when he should be just trying to get the ball in play, right? Just keep the inning going so that way the uh, potential tying run can come up to bat. Now it worked out. And if you were just looking at the numbers, you're like, oh man, dude hit two home runs, including one really late in the game to keep the Giants uh, alive for a little bit longer. But it's an example of a guy who really doesn't know what they're doing at the dish. 
Um, and you see that when you watch his at-bats. He, he swings and misses too much. Um, he's not willing to shorten his swing when he gets down to two strikes. Uh, I think he's still a pretty raw uh, prospect. And I think when the, I think coming into next season, it would not be surprising if he spent more time in the minor leagues than he does in the majors. So if you're looking at him from a dynasty perspective um, or, or a keeper league perspective, he's probably not as interesting as he seems right now from a redraft perspective. He's going to be on the major league roster the rest of the way, and they will play him at other positions to get his bat in the lineup. So um, he has got, I think, more value in redraft than he does in dynasty or keeper formats, which is not something you say about such a young player. Luis Matos, uh, staying with the Giants, didn't make the list because he didn't have enough plate appearances. But since we have a Giants observer on the line here, I think I'd like to know what your opinion is about Luis Matos, what you thought when they first called him up and what you think of him now. So Matos is a really interesting guy that um, people really had extremely high up on their, uh, their prospect list really early on in his minor league career. But he's never quite developed the uh, the power that we thought would come from the kind of explosive, beautiful swing that he has. Uh, what has developed is his speed and his ability to make contact. Uh, and in spite of the fact, I know he's hitting only 246 um, right now. He's making about league average zone contact. He's not striking out uh, very much. Uh, and he's fast. There is some thought that at some point, there will be power that kind of gets gained as his body continues to develop. He gets a little bit bigger and stronger, but right now he is mostly a guy who, you know, has enough power to play, you know, maybe he can hit 10 home runs in a full season, but he can really get you a lot of stolen bases. And I think he will hit for a good average. Uh, The question is, do the, the giants who are being trying to be competitive right now, in spite of what I've been screaming at them to do, um, I think, they may end up sending him down at some point, maybe at the trade deadline if they acquire any other bats, uh, just because I don't think he's quite a finished product. So um, I do like Matos long-term. I don't love him as much in the short term. Anthony Volpe of the Yankees has been a controversial player. He was scuffling, especially in the ratios, but over the last, I don't know, 20 games or so, Apparently it had something to do with chowing down on his mom's home cooking. Uh, 22 for 58, I saw somewhere, a 379 average, five doubles, a triple, a couple of homers, a 1050 OPS. So obviously this kind of streak performance gets a lot of people talking about, is this a factor of fluke kind of thing? And overall his strikeout and walk rates are pretty good. His home run pace would set him around 22 home runs, 33 stolen bases in a full season. But the StatCast batted ball stats are really unimpressive. So where do you stand on Volpe for the rest of this season and in the longer term for people thinking dynasty or keeper? I believe the uh, the uh, the chicken parm he had was with uh, teammate Austin, or former uh, minor league teammate Austin Wells, I believe is the kid's name, uh, catching prospect for, for the Yankees. Um, and that was the turnaround. They had a conversation over chicken parm, and um, and he... he uh, changed uh, a little bit of his stance um, uh, because he wasn't making uh, very good contact in the zone. And I mean, here's the thing. If you look at the underlying numbers over this hot stretch, you know, since uh, June 8th, um, so, you know, a, just under a month, uh, you know, he's making 86, 87% zone contact, which is just a little bit above league average. 
hitting the ball hard, kind of doing all the things you want him to do. Now, I caution people with these kind of small samples, right? Like these small samples can change. And while the skills look good right now, and I think there's a really good chance that he can continue them, they could go right back to being crap uh, here in the next month. Uh, and so it's kind of a high risk, high upside play. Um, you know, the, the, the high upside, you know, is apparent. He's got power. He's got speed. Um, the Yankees do like to, uh, you know, hit or prior to the cold, you know, real bad cold trust, they were hitting him really high up in the lineup. I think he could go back there if he continues doing what he's doing. Um, but there is a, you know, the downside we saw, I mean, he couldn't even hit his body weight. He's not a really big dude. Um, you know, for the vast majority of the season. And the Yankees have shown they will not send him down. So you will, while that is usually framed as a good thing, when a guy is playing every day and giving you a bad at batting average, you are eating all of that bad batting average. And it offsets a lot of what good batting averages do from other players. So um, it's a little high risk, high reward. I think I'm willing to roll with it, but I'm I'm keeping a very, very close eye on are the underlying numbers changing? Is he making good contact? Um, you know, watching as many at-bats as I can to see kind of what he does at the plate. Um, uh, be cautious with a guy like that, right? Because we saw with Jared Kelnick, right? Everybody got really, really excited, including myself, about all the changes Jared Kelnick made in the offseason. He started off hot. We were all doing, like, backflips, you know, running the victory laps that we're not supposed to do. And he's been awful. <laughs> he's been awful over the last month looking exactly like the guy who got sent down multiple times. Um, and so uh, like, you know, I know we want to go with skills, not roles. That's what you should do, but skills change too. And they can go up and down at the same time. The second quartile has only three names. I'll start with Jay. I just noticed uh, Jordan Walker, Joey Weimer and Jose Caballero. I think Walker's the clear top gun in this little group here, but uh, anything to say about his playing time difficulties because St. Louis seems to be doinking around with how they're putting guys out there and anything to say about Joey Weimer or Jose Caballero? Um, uh, Caballero is an interesting guy as a stolen base guy. I do you know, question what his, what his role is going to be on the, on the team. Uh, the entire season, uh, I do think the Mariners again are going to be better, and they're going to need to make additions at the trade deadline, and uh, he could lose playing time. Uh, Weimer is who he is; like he is exactly as advertised, which is a guy with power, speed, and not very good contact ability. Uh, and so he's going to have big ups, big downs, and that's going to be um, exciting and frustrating all at the same time. Jordan Walker is a really, really interesting prospect. Um, not necessarily from like his pure talent perspective, because his pure talent is actually just off the charts. Like he is just like a really, really good natural athlete and hitter, and um, and he should be playing every day and hitting in the middle or top of what should be a really good lineup in St. Louis. It's interesting because St. Louis has gone from the most trusted organization in baseball. Uh, the Cardinals have never been able or never done anything wrong, like ever, like in terms of like their development of players, their managing, their the way their organization is run. 
And all of a sudden, they're the Colorado Rockies. Like, I don't understand what has happened this year. And I know that Ollie uh, Marmel is the one getting a lot of the blame, but this is not only his fault. This is an organizational, just like organization that has gotten drunk overnight. And, uh, and I don't trust them. And I, that's the weirdest thing to say because we were talking about, you know, the Dodgers and the Rays and the Guardians, how much we trust their develop developing of pitching and in prospects in general. And, um, uh, we used to the Cardinals used to be uttered in those same breaths, and now I, I, in one season, they've like destroyed all that goodwill with their behavior this year. I don't know what Walker's playing time is going to look like. I think on a per plate appearance basis, he is a fantastic hitter who is going to give you value. But if you're playing in a weekly league, that's hard to trust if you don't know. Especially like Tyler O'Neill comes back. I think they should trade Tyler O'Neill, get him out of town, get something for him, like some pitching. Uh, but like what are they gonna do? Like, are they gonna continue to kind of jerk uh Jordan Walker around? I have no idea. Like, I can't read this organization anymore. Our top quartile has Zach Neto, Masataka Yoshida of Boston, Matt McLean of the Reds. Boy, what a season. And uh, here's one that I really was caught by surprise, Ryan Noda of Oakland. A lot of swing and miss in that game. He reminded me of Joey Gallo when I looked at the profile. Tons of strikeouts, 19% walk rate, a lot of power. But when you consider the park, the team, uh, the lack of pedigree, I think he was a 15th-round draft pick by Toronto six or seven years ago. Where do you see this Noda guy fitting in in the long run? Uh, I mean, Noda is like the definition of a three true outcome hitter. Uh, he will walk, he will strike out, or he will hit a bomb. Um, and that's really, really exciting, especially if you're on base percentage leagues. Uh, but because, I mean, his on-base percentage is 383. Like, you'll take that every day from a guy that, you know, has 30 home run potential. Uh, the problem is in your traditional average leagues, he strikes out so much. Um, and, like, he could actually be a batting average sink. I mean, he is a first-base version, or I guess the uh, the Oakland version of when Joey Gallo plays first base. I mean, he makes some of the worst – uh, or he's some of the worst in zone contact rates in major league baseball. Um, and that is one of those guys that reminds me a lot of like Chris Carter who had like a 40 home run season and then was out of the league. Uh, and I think that Ryan Noda is one of those guys that like he could have some massive seasons and then completely disappear. Uh, but when you're on Oakland, there's no competition. They've got to play someone um, there's only 40 men on their 40 man roster and not a lot of them play first base. So like, I think he's got a lot of stability in terms of his playing time for the rest of the season. But like, if he doesn't, if he doesn't play in the majors next year and is out of baseball in two or three seasons, I won't be surprised until he fixed, uh, fixes that swing and miss in the zone. The other somewhat surprising guy, Zach Neto got off to a slow start. Then he got rolling again. I think he looks okay, but what do you think of Neto as a fantasy producer? I really like Neto. So I, I think people were really questioning, and I, I mean, I think I was one of them, questioning um, like how aggressive the Angels were on him uh, because he was drafted in the 2022 draft. Like So like 
he was he was a polished prospect coming up, but I think people were pretty surprised how quickly they moved him up to the majors. Um, he definitely struggled. He looked overmatched early on, uh, but prior to suffering the oblique injury that put him on the IL, which he should be coming back from here in the next couple weeks, um, he really started to look like the guy that uh, people thought he could be, um, and that's a high-contact hitter. Um, that doesn't have a curing tool in fantasy necessarily. He doesn't have prodigious power. He doesn't have a ton of speed, but he can do enough of everything. And so, uh, you know, I think like if he if he's a guy who can get full time plate appearances, I think of him as like a Xander Bogarts esque type player, where he's never going to light up any particular stat, but he's going to play every day, and he's going to contribute in enough categories where he becomes kind of underratedly valuable. Whenever I watch him play, it just makes me think I'm really old because he looks like he's about 14 years old. Yeah. He's kind of slight and, and he bounces around up there like a kid who's playing in college. But, uh, yeah, I, he's an interesting guy for the future. So is Matt McLean. But some experts, Justin, say that he's out over his skis a little bit with this $16 season so far. In 650 plate appearances, it'd be 22 homers, 15 bags, 100 or so RBIs, 90 or so runs scored. And a 300 batting average probably be a little more like a 20 or $21 season. Where are you on McLean's potential? Is the league going to catch up with him or is he going to keep catching up with the league? I mean, he's like, he is getting lucky. Um, you know, his XBA is like 268. Uh, he's running a 394 BABIP. Um, and so, yes, there, there probably should just be natural regression. However, when you put the ball in play as much as he does, he's got an 88% zone contact rate and a league average right around 85%, I believe. Um, you give yourselves the opportunity to get lucky, right? Like, you know, when you have a guy who is swinging and missing all the time, like a, a Ryan Noda, right? You're not giving yourself the opportunity to get lucky. Um, and so I will, I will bet on the guy who's giving himself the opportunity because he's putting the ball in play and making contact quite a bit over the guy who's swinging and missing a bunch. And so while I do think there's going to be some natural regression, it may not regress as far as people expect. I don't think you then plug in, oh, he's going to hit 265 for the rest of the season. Hey, maybe it's 280. Hey, 280 with a guy who's got power and speed and hitting on top of a lineup that's become extremely potent in the best or one of the best uh, parks to hit in in baseball is a pretty exciting player. So uh, like I, if, if someone wants to sell high on Matt McLean right now, I'll buy because I don't think you're going to have to pay what he's probably worth. What other hitting prospects are you looking forward to seeing called up this season? Uh, Sal Fre uh, Freelich, like he hasn't, um, you know, uh, made his debut, uh, yet. I, we just saw Colton Kowser make his debut. I'm, I'm really interested to kind of see him, uh, a little bit more. Uh, man, we've had so many called up. I, I mean, it's, it's hard to even think of any that might still be in the minor leagues, um, that are, are expected to, uh, get called up. Christian and Carson, you know, Strand. Um, it will be really exciting in the same way that Ellie De La Cruz is uh, really exciting. He hits the ball really, really hard. Uh, but the question is, where do they play him? Um, Joey Votto's back, and, I mean, you, they might as well just build the statue of Joey Votto on first base right now uh, because, I mean, they he will probably retire 
Um, and, and I'm not talking about like actual baseball retirement, but like real life retirement, like he could play that position till he's 70. Uh, if the, you know, if, if he wants to, um, so like, he's not replacing Joey Votto. They've had him been playing in the outfield a little bit, but like that outfield stack too. So, uh, as much as I want Christian Carstino strand to come up, because I think he's really, really talented and I want to see him play at the major league level. Like, I just don't know how they force him up to give him full-time playing time. Um, uh, Kobe Mayo may be up at some point, uh, Heston Kerstad. So, I mean, the Orioles have promoted all these guys, and they still have guys to promote. So, uh, you know, uh, the, the Orioles are going to be one of the most interesting, fun organizations over the next five years uh, with all this young talent. And, I mean, that doesn't include, you know, the the best prospect in baseball, Jackson Holiday, who's tearing up uh, uh, A-ball right now. So, uh, Orioles have a really bright future ahead. I wondered when you were talking about the Reds and the difficulty of finding Encarnacion Strand a spot, I've seen a lot of speculation that given their offensive surplus and pitching lack of surplus, shall we call it, that uh, the Reds have a lot of opportunity here to maybe package up two or three of their outfielders or those that kind of guy and maybe get themselves a, a pitcher for the playoff run. And I think that could happen, but otherwise, yeah, there's that. And then I think Encarnacion Strand's been on a real cooler the last month or so, uh -huh. like, like a 650 OPS for the last month and Oop. just a couple of home runs. So they have an excuse if, if the Cincinnati fan base says we want Christian to be called up, they say he's not hitting, you know, and we have no place to put him. So I think that's going to be one of the more interesting guys to follow. I, I agree with you about the Baltimore prospects. Gosh, like an endless parade uh, still to come. And when Holiday especially gets enough experience at the minor league level where he's going to eventually get his call up, assuming he continues to perform in the minors. Boy, talk about an embarrassment of riches there too. And they need pitching. So there could be some, uh, some dealing going on there. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio. Patrick Davitt here with Justin Mason from Friends with Fantasy Benefits, Rotographs, Fantasy Pros, and a lot of different podcasts, including this one, I'm glad to say. And Justin, as you know, I like to wrap up these discussions by looking at some boons and banes. I know you wanted to talk about players for the rest of the season. Let's start with your batter, who could be a boon for the rest of the year. I, I was going to, you know, talk about Ryan Mountcastle here, but we already talked about him. So I'll talk about Glaber Torres. Um, I think Torres, while he's had an okay season, like I think he is a better player than the surface stats uh, kind of suggest. Um, you know, so far this year, he's hit 245, 13 home runs, seven stolen bases. Uh, but the XBA is 275. That Yankee lineup is going to get healthy at some point. And so this is, again, one of those situations where you're not buying low, right? Because no one's just giving away Glaber Torres for free. But I think you can buy a little bit lower than what uh, his true value will be rest of the way. So Glaber Torres is a guy that I'd be uh, I'd be targeting. I've tried to target in a few kind of uh, trading leagues. How about a pitcher who could be a boon for the rest of the year? Um, again, uh, so same type of thing. I'm, I'm looking for a guy that uh, I think can give me elite production rest of the way that I don't have to pay elite production prices for. And Zach Wheeler has been elite uh, and just been unlucky. I mean, he's got a really low walk rate, a really low home run rate. He's getting strikeouts. Uh, Philadelphia seems like they might come around at some point uh, in this race. Uh, and I, again, I don't think, I think people have been 
if you're just looking at the ERA and you're going, oh man, he's got an over four ERA, he's not the pitcher I drafted, you might be able to get him just a tad bit cheaper than you would have on uh, on opening day or in draft season. Uh, and I think he's probably a top 10 pitcher the rest of the way. And I don't think you got to pay that price. Let's go to your Baines. These are players who are probably going to disappoint for the balance of the year. Again, uh, who's a batter, but a Bane. Uh, Whit Merrifield. I mean, like we already kind of mentioned him in terms of he shouldn't made the all-star team, but because he did, this is a perfect time to trade him, right? He's going to, you know, get uh, profiled on a big stage. Uh, people who weren't as in tune with the underlying numbers are going to be really excited. Yes, he steals bases, but the the, the BABIP is overinflating that batting average. That's going to come back down to earth. He's never going to move up that lineup uh, consistently uh, because he's just too good in Toronto. Uh, and I just, you know, he's old now. He's not as fast as he used to be. I, I see a second half slowdown coming for Whit Merrifield. So I, I would definitely try to sell him if I had him somewhere. And finally, who's a pitcher who could be a bane for the rest of the year? Oh, man, uh, Sonny Gray. Um, I, I know he's pitched extremely well, but he's, I mean, he's just gotten extremely lucky. Uh, and he's a guy who has had trouble with home runs in the past. He's had trouble with staying healthy. I don't have a lot of faith that he's going to be able to continue to pitch at the level that he's pitched. Uh over the course of a full season uh, at this point in his career. And so if I could get, uh, especially get like a top 40, top 50 hitter for Sonny Gray, that's a guy that I'd be looking to move out. Justin Mason's Boone's Glaber Torres of the Yankees and Zach Wheeler of Philadelphia, his Baines, Whit Merrifield of Toronto and Sonny Gray of Minnesota. Geez, this has been terrific. Justin, remind our listeners where they can keep up with your work and it's a lengthy list. Yeah, I uh, I write pretty much daily at Fangraphs, um, though I'll be taking time off for uh, for the All Star break here, uh, uh, and then I write three days a week over at Fantasy Pros. Uh, I'm on the Sleeper in the Bus podcast and the Friends of Fantasy Benefits podcast, uh, and you can follow me on Twitter at Justin Mason FWFB, which is where most of my musings and, and work goes out at. And it's terrific work, uh, as anybody who just listened to us for an hour and a half uh, would uh, quickly realize. It's been a lot of fun, Justin. I do appreciate you taking the time, and I hope I get to talk to you again at least once more before the season's over. Absolutely. uh, I'll come back anytime, Patrick. Justin Mason writes at Friends with Fantasy Benefits, Rotographs in Fantasy Pros, and appears regularly on many fantasy baseball podcasts. Coming up, we have our Baseball HQ commentaries, The Frequent Flyer, and My Extra Innings are on the way. But first, one last reminder of the resources available to you when you subscribe to BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. We have comprehensive coverage of the prospects who can make or break a fantasy season, Never more important than it is now. We have our daily call-ups report. This week, the Baseball HQ scouting team looks at Baltimore outfielder Colton Kowser, Cubs right-handed starter Daniel Palencia, and Milwaukee second baseman Jamai Jones. As well, Chris Blessing looks at a prospect pool that's springing some leaks because of all the call-ups this season and how we as fantasy managers can manage that. And Chris and Brent Hershey host the weekly Eyes Have It podcast, this week's edition titled Seattle Bound, Connecting Through Chicago. Comprehensive coverage of the prospects is just another great resource at BaseballHQ.com. 
In fact, I've mentioned a few of the resources on the site now, and they're just the tip of the iceberg of all the great content and tools you'll find at BaseballHQ.com all the time. Player performance validation in facts and flukes, news updates in playing time today, roster forecasting in playing time tomorrow. We have buyer's guides for hitters, starters, and relief pitchers, fantasy market analysis in the market pulse, long shot speculations in the speculator column, team injury reports, player injury analysis in the big hurt, gaming strategy analysis for rotisserie, points, leagues, NFBC, and alternative formats, and groundbreaking fantasy baseball research. As well, there are tools like the player projections updated every day, updated depth charts, daily dashboards, pitcher matchup planners, bullpen indicators, batter consistency reports, complete pitcher PQS logs, potential surgers and faders, and other leading indicators for hitters and pitchers. Add it all up, you get expert content plus tools you can use to improve your teams and win your leagues. And they're why we call our site the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Baseball HQ Radio. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Time now for our Baseball HQ commentaries. Coming up, we have my extra innings comment. And leading off, it's the Frequent Flyer, where we look at a player who might be available on your league's free agent list and who has the skills to contribute to the success of your teams. Here with a look at New York Mets shortstop Ronnie Mauricio is Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky. He's a tall, powerful, switch-hitting New York Mets prospect who has grown into his frame with still more power to come, according to Baseball HQ's 2023 minor league baseball analyst. Great description. Pretty accurate. Let's break it down. Standing six foot three inches tall with 12 home runs already under his belt in 2023, 22-year-old New York Mets shortstop prospect Roddy Mauricio certainly is tall and powerful. As a switch hitter, Mauricio is currently batting 329 versus lefties and 295 versus righties with a combined slash line of 308, 348, and 505 through 77 games in 2023, producing an 853 OPS. Very impressive. Factor in 14 stolen bases with the aforementioned 348 on-base percentage, a great combination, Mauricio might be a difference maker at the major league level. However, worth noting, our research at BaseballHQ.com indicates that 60% of first-half 300 hitters failed to hit 300 again in the second half. Keep that in mind at the All-Star break. Plus, Mauricio, a natural shortstop, is quite obviously blocked by Francisco Lindor at short for the foreseeable future. That's why 22-year-old New York Mets switch-hitting shortstop Roddy Mauricio, like all of our frequent flyers, should be considered to be a long shot who may be worth a flyer if he is still available in your league. Even so, Mauricio has been absolutely stinging the ball this season, flashing double-plus raw power according to Baseball HQ's Doug Otto in his May 30th Miners column on BaseballHQ.com. Additionally, Doug implies that more raw power is likely to come when Mauricio improves his launch angle and his barrel rate. Of course, the million-dollar question is when will Mauricio arrive in Queens? Worth noting, the trade deadline is only a few weeks away. Notwithstanding reports of Mauricio recently seeing time and gaining experience at second base and in left field, Sports Illustrated's Pat Ragazzo on May 6th quoted Mets general manager Billy Epler as saying that the organization plans to take a systematic approach to Mauricio's development. 
Nevertheless, the New York Post John Heyman caused quite a stir on June 11th by tweeting that Mauricio should be a call-up candidate soon with the Mets needing offense. Plus, New York sports radio personality Brandon Tierney, co-host of the Tiki and Tierney Show with Tiki Barber on 101.9 FM The Fan, suggested on June 29th that the Mets should immediately begin the youth movement by trading Tommy Fan and calling up Roddy Mauricio. Tiki Barber followed up on July 5th by saying that if the Mets' recent winning trend doesn't continue over the next two weeks, the Mets need to ignite the fire sale, which should spark you to stash 22-year-old New York Mets switch hitting shortstop. Roddy Mauricio is our frequent flyer for this week. For Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Alex Becky at BaseballHQ.com. Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky has his frequent flyer comment here on Baseball HQ Radio every week. Now it's time for Extra Innings, my weekly comment on baseball and fantasy baseball, and this week I want to talk about how we could improve All-Star Weekend. Earlier in the pod, Justin Mason and I talked about how uninteresting we find baseball's All-Star Weekend, and we briefly touched on some ideas to make it more interesting and fun, like the NBA and NHL have done with their All-Star Weekends, and even the stodgy old NFL started doing this season as well. So, I have a few ideas to flesh out here on Extra Innings. The first idea that I want to steal, I'm sorry, copy, I'm sorry, take inspiration from, is the skills competitions in the NBA and NHL. You know how the NHL has that contest with players trying to shoot pucks at styrofoam targets in the four corners of the net? We could do exactly the same thing with the four corners of the strike zone, a contest for fastballs, curves, and sliders, maybe combining accuracy and velocity in some way. Hockey also has a hardest shot contest. Why not a fastest batted ball contest, or a fastest fastball contest for that matter, or both? The NHL also has skating races, so why couldn't baseball have a timed sprint from first to third, or a first to second steal attempt, or second to home? And speaking of steals, how about a catcher-to-second pop time and accuracy game with a set of concentric rings in a net out at the edge of second base on the first base side, scoring by some combo of quickness and accuracy of the catcher's throw? Speaking of throwing, how about contests from the outfield? Outfield throws can be one of the most exciting plays in the game. We could have right field to third, left and center field to home, anything you like. We could also have an outfield jump contest with a cannon of some kind shooting fly balls out into the gaps and players competing to chase them down at longer and longer distances. Imagine Julio Rodriguez, Jose Siri, Trent Grisham, Harrison Bader, Corbin Carroll, all those great outfielders tracking down fly balls in deep center. And maybe we could figure out a way to have them chase down Texas leaguers in front of them as well. We could have an infield throwing and fielding contest, coming in, going into the hole, going back on a Texas leaguer, making all those long throws to first. I'm telling you, it'd be great. I mentioned this one, talking with Justin, instead of one game, have a little mini tournament. One team full of rookies, another team full of sophomores, a team of over 35 players, however else you could invent ways to divvy up the players, then have games where each team bats once through the order with three pitchers facing three hitters each. Scoring is by total bases, including steals, minus points for caught stealings, and then you figure out a winner and move forward in a little tournament. I thought up all of these in just a few minutes, like you didn't already guess that. The point is that All-Star Weekend could be a lot more fun than just watching some guys whack one ball after another out of the park. 
It's like three hours of watching a bunch of golfers at the driving range, which is even worse than watching a bunch of golfers golfing. We could get more stars in front of more fans showing off more amazing skills in a more entertaining way. I know it would work. I only hope my grandchildren get to see it. For BaseballHQ.com, I'm Patrick Davitt, and I have my extra innings commentary here on Baseball HQ Radio just about every week. And that's Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, July the 7th. Thanks very much for taking the time to download and listen to show number 24 of the 2023 Fantasy Baseball season. I also want to thank our guest expert for this Friday full edition, Justin Mason, from Friends with Fantasy Benefits, Rotographs, Fantasy Pros, and multiple Fantasy Baseball podcasts. Justin just might be the hardest working guy in Fantasy Baseball. He's also an accomplished fantasy player in his own right and one of the industry's leading analysts. And it's always a treat to talk baseball with Justin. I also want to thank our regular commentators from BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Our Market Watch news analyst was Ray Murphy, and our frequent flyer commentator was Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky. I'm Patrick Davitt, your extra innings commentator and the host of Baseball HQ Radio. I sure hope to see you on those BaseballHQ.com subscriber forums. Also, remember you can stay in contact with Baseball HQ on Facebook and on our Twitter feed at Baseball HQ. You can also follow my personal Twitter feed at Patrick Davitt, at least until I find another social media platform, where you'll always be the first to know when a new podcast is available. Please tell your friends about Baseball HQ Radio. Take a second to go to Apple Podcasts, Google Pods, Pocket Cast, Spotify, wherever you catch your pods, and leave Baseball HQ Radio a good review and a rating. It really does help us find new listeners, and new listeners help us keep the podcast going. If your pod getter of choice doesn't find Baseball HQ Radio, let us know about that or anything else on your mind by emailing bhqradio, all one word, at gmail.com. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back again on Monday with a special mid-season roundtable edition featuring Todd Zola and Ray Murphy discussing the fantasy landscape through the first 60% of the season. Then we'll have a bunch more Friday full editions with more top-notch guest experts on the docket. Next Friday, I'll talk with Greg Jewett from the Reliever Recon website, the lineup's outlook column at Baseball HQ, and the closer reporter for The Athletic. The Friday after that, it's Rob McCabe, a fantasy baseball researcher specializing in detailed fab analysis. And the Friday after that, it's Jason Collette from Rotowire and the Sleeper and the Bust podcast. Plus, of course, every week we'll have all the usual great news analysis and Baseball HQ commentaries we always have. That's Todd Zola and Ray Murphy on Monday's special mid-season roundtable and Greg Jewett on next Friday's full edition of the podcast with Fantasy Baseball Intelligence for Winners. It is Baseball HQ Radio. I'll talk with you again on Monday. And for now, so long. Baseball HQ Radio is a weekly free podcast available through iTunes and other podcast aggregators or directly from BaseballHQ.com, where we have an archive of past shows as well. Just look for the HQ Radio microphone logo on the right side of the BaseballHQ.com homepage. Baseball HQ Radio is a production of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The opinions expressed on Baseball HQ Radio are those of the individual speaking and not necessarily those of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The program is produced and edited by Patrick Davitt.